Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Sean Ryan Show. This week we have a former Green Beret and CIA operator who worked over at Ground Branch. We cover his time in service extensively to include a specific gunfight where he single-handedly killed 26 enemy combatants. Once again, he killed 26 enemy combatants is a solo gunfighter. That event actually revolutionized all of training over at CIA. You see, previous to that event, we never did one-man close quarters combat. After that, everybody started training one-man close quarters combat, which was previously strictly forbidden. After that, we go into his run for Congress, and what we wind up covering, or actually uncovering is all of the corruption, I guess I shouldn't say all, a lot of the corruption within the Republican Party, which I think you'll find very alarming. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all of my patrons. Because of you, you are what makes this show happen. If you can't support us on Patreon, please head over to Apple Podcast and Spotify. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the show. Like, comment, and subscribe to the channel. And last of all, we see a lot of you taking our content from these shows, making your own, and release it on social media. We love it. We absolutely love it. In fact, we love it so much, we wanted to make it easy on you. So if you go in the description, there is a link. It has thousands and thousands of raw reels from all the episodes that you can download for free, turn them into your own creation, monetize it, make money off of it. The only thing we ask is that you tag The Sean Ryan Show in your creation because we love seeing them. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Tony Cowden to The Sean Ryan Show. And one last thing, for those of you that don't know, and he might not even know this, this is coming from 10th Group. SF people today, SF operators, Green Berets, current ones, call him Uncle Tony. Let's get on with it. Tony Cowden, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. We've been uh, we've had this on the schedule for like six months. Thank <laughs> you more. And yeah. uh, we're finally here. We're making it happen. Yeah. But uh, spent an entire career in U.S. Special Forces, and then moved on to CIA, I believe correct. And then spent basically another career over there. Now you're teaching tactics, shooting fundamentals, advanced shooting, all kinds of stuff. Ran for Congress, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, didn't make it. I can't wait to dive into that segment. But um, man, we got a lot to talk about. I want to talk about, you know, this is basically your biography. So I want to hit childhood, military career, contracting career, teaching, Congress, and let's put a lot of mental health in there because a lot of guys from our former background, uh, you know, they get, they get, yeah. They get a lot of wisdom out of this yeah. podcast, yeah. and um, and it's important. It's 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 helped a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, so we got a lot to talk about. But before we do, everybody that comes on the show gets a gift. I'm pretty sure the only reason you're here is to get this. But <laughs> I'm excited about it. Here you go. Oh, yeah. There you go, man. 
good stuff. Now, I'm going to go ahead and predict who's going to eat most of these. And because, uh, uh, you know, Melissa, even though she's a dentist, <laughs> the chick loves junk food. And now she doesn't eat much, but when she does eat, quote unquote, junk food, it's like what a four-year-old would choose. You yeah. know, like Sour Patch Kids and stuff like that. It's yeah. so hilarious when people when people uh, see Melissa eat something, they're like, aren't you a dentist? She's like, yeah. <laughs> that's her answer. And? Yeah. What? So like I brush my teeth. So that's awesome, man. Thank you very much. This, yeah, is, this is very cool. I, I And like, I just want to say, you know, I told you, but to your listeners, man, like, I'm proud of, A, that you invited me on one, but just what you're doing. And, the, and you've had some amazing uh, guests. And, and, you know, I joke, but it's not really a joke. Like, man, there's a couple of those I didn't really want to follow. Like, man, I'd like to go on before a couple of these these cats you had on. Uh, but I think it's amazing, the depth of your podcast. Um some of the folks you've had on. It's not just the knuckle dragger, uh, you know, tell me about your war stories. It's so much more in depth, man. So, and again, from everything with like Trevor and Marcus and, and all the different mental health conversations you've had on here with guys. And there's been some, I mean, frankly, some badasses come yeah. on here and open up. And, and that's a good example, especially for the younger guys who are, I mean, let's face it, man. America Day, young men in America, they're confused, and rightfully so. I mean, they're being told that it's okay to be a girl. They're being told that everything that makes men men is bad. And luckily, I think we're seeing some of that pendulum starting to shift. But what what happens in the meantime to our brothers? You know, yeah. and I don't mean just soft guys. I mean, in a lot of ways, we have a slightly better community. You know, you're talking about, like, thank you again, man. You're welcome. Uh, you know, so many of these infantry Marines, let's face it, Marines, man, even like at Marsoc, you know, the Marines will eat their own in a second. You know, the Marine Corps is destroying guys, like, right? Marsoc 3, Danny and Eric and those guys, you know. I mean, you know, there's an, it, it's so frustrating, you know. And, and for guys, yeah, they, they guys, they, they need, I don't, I don't want to say they need help, they need good examples. Yeah. Right, and we talk about. I mean, there's those taglines and phrases in the military leadership models of, you know, setting the example, exceeding standards, all that stuff. Things we throw around, words we throw around, like they don't, you know, they just don't mean anything. But man, it's important. It is it's really important. You know, this. Well, when I started this, you know, it's it's always it's always been kind of frowned upon. You know, the the whole. Let's talk about our service afterwards and the cool guy shit that we did. And and a lot of people, you know, consider it chest pounding. And and so what I you know, what I wanted to do is I want when I started this is I wanted one, I wanted to document history. I wanted to talk about mental health. Uh, I wanted to get guys that, you know, that have the courage to come out here and, and be fucking vulnerable and and talk about their struggles and and, and inform the public, you know, kids that are coming in, people that are coming out like this isn't, I, I guess I'm not going to say it's not, it's, a, it's not everything it's cracked up to be, but there's so much more that comes into a job like this that people don't think about. They don't think about what it's like coming out. And so, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to paint a life story, you know, and talk about the reason I go into all the combat 
stuff is one, it's documenting history, which is fucking important because we don't do that shit enough anymore in this country. Two, it qualifies you to talk about the mental health stuff because nobody wants to hear you talk about mental health if you haven't walked through that fire. I've I've made posts on social media and, and there's very few things I do that aren't meant to help people. Very few. I mean, whether it's a how to shoot a pistol better on you know video or mental health or exercise, you know, I I post a lot of workout stuff. Well, it's an integral part of my own maintenance of my own mental health. And I have had people say, clearly, you don't know anything about mental health. When I say things like, you need to get outside. These drugs that they've put you on, these mood, uh, brain-altering drugs, you know, SSRIs and all these powerful drugs, they don't cure anything. You don't have a Wellbutrin deficiency, right? You need to address your diet. Let's let's get to the root cause. And then if you've addressed and checked all those boxes, you quit drinking, uh, I I think developing, I, I know, let me rephrase that, I don't think, I know that... Uh, being spiritual, and in my case, being connected to you know God, I'm a Christian, uh, is is part of that. It's a package deal. So if you've checked all those boxes and you still need an SSRI or anti-anxiety or any of these other powerful prescription drugs, hey, so be it. That's not what we're seeing, right? I can go to the doctor, probably to an urgent care, <laughs> and yeah. tell them I'm feeling down and get a drug for a, a prescription for a drug that will change me as a human being. Yeah. All right. And so I've had people say, well, clearly you don't know anything about mental health. I'm like, whoa, I am not formally trained. But I have since 2001. So it is at 22 years of in and out of combat, interacting with guys who needed help. And I have somehow maintained a pretty even kill level of uh, mental health. It's not to say I don't have days that I'm sad. You know, there's always those anniversaries that you're like, man. Yeah. And, and I will tell you, man, like, everyone has a gift. And I, I always say I have a, a pretty good gift of being able to convince myself of things. <laughs> and it was a long time ago, you know, when it, when it came to mental health, uh, my mother died of cancer after a four, four and a half year bout of cancer when, you know, I was a kid. Damn. And, you know, I don't think... Like, it doesn't go through my head like, man, I wish my mom had been here to see me do X or Y or, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I wish my mother was here, but I don't think like that, right? She's dead. And when she died, she taught me the greatest lesson that I could, she could have probably ever given me. And that is you need to appreciate what you have and who you have while they're here because everyone you know is going to die from something, old age, Combat, a car wreck, cancer, name it. Man, what age were you when she taught you that? What's that? What age were you when that? 16. 16. You know, so 12-ish when she was diagnosed. And I'll tell you, man, you know, it it wasn't a cool thing, you know, but I was a a baby. I was a kid. I was an immature child, not even close to being a young man. And, you know, some people joke that I was mama's baby boy. You know, I got two sisters, an older and a younger, so I'm— What's that quintessential the the rose between two thorns? <laughs> my sisters are my sisters are awesome, man. Um, and uh, you know, 
like I said, my dad wasn't a hugs and kisses type of dude, but he he raised three pretty successful um, people with three very different personalities. Um, but, you know, in a different parallel, like my sisters will still, you know, they, they, it took them much, much longer. And in, in my younger sister's case, I don't think she's still over her mother's death. And you're talking it was, it was 30 years ago. Literally coming up on a 30-year, now that I think it's 30-year anniversary of my mother's death here in a couple of weeks. Um, now, if I could go back and redo it, right, and this is what I share with people, I'm like, imagine from their point of view, right, when I hear people like, oh, you know, my grandfather has cancer or my mother has cancer or my whoever has cancer, I'm like, now put yourself in their shoes. Because if I could go back and put myself in her shoes, I would have been a much better son. In other words... Can you imagine how horrified she was? She knew she was going to die. She had yeah. three kids that she knew she was she was going to pass before any of us were mature adults, even close to being mature adults. Older sister's four years older than me, so you know she was already in college. And um, so anyway, like I said, man, she taught me that, and unbeknownst to me at the time, it would prepare me better. I wouldn't say fully, but prepare me much better for losing, uh, oh, I hate saying that, for my friends being killed in combat. I didn't lose them. I hate that word. I attended a, uh, a seminar 10 years ago for PTSD, and it wasn't combat PTSD necessarily, and this PhD lady, big brain lady, she was talking about one of the biggest problems and one of the things she hypothesized was that PTSD and mental health is so horrible in America around death is that we do a horrible job preparing ourselves for death. We don't celebrate life. We mourn death. Where other cultures, you know, in our culture not that long ago, celebrated life, right? We celebrate their lives. And we do an okay job in soft. We talk about it. We get together and we celebrate at funerals. Uh, we were talking about Seth Farwell before we got on. You know, dude, there was 150 operators at his funeral. Oh, man. Right? Coeur d'Alene was either the most dangerous place on the planet or the safest, according to how you want to look at it. Yeah. Uh, and oddly enough, no one got any bar fights uh, in downtown <laughs> Coeur d'Alene. Um, and there was some some wild childs there, you know? Most of those dudes I haven't talked to since. It's over two years ago. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. we celebrated him, and then we moved on. Um, so anyway... The mental health piece, man. It's important. I've, like I said, I've maintained good mental health through a few practices. I made a post about it yesterday on, on the drive up here. Some do's and don'ts. My do's and don'ts, right? I don't talk to people from a place of judgment or a place of authority when it comes to things I'm not an expert on. And like, even when it comes to things that I might even be an expert on, I'm still open to further learning. You know what I mean? Like, the way I used to explosively breach a door 20 years ago is much different than what I use today. You know, I'm always, we have to, and it's a cliche, right? Always learning, always a student. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm open. But it was just some do's and don'ts, my do's and don'ts, right? I'm just no judgment. It's this is what I do. And like the do's were, you know, physical fitness, go outside. I, I kind of made a joke. Um, take up hunting because it's outside. Take, pick up new hobbies, preferably ones that are outside. And like, you know, down at the bottom, I'm like, did I mention get outside more? 
we weren't designed to be interior people, man. We didn't evolve to be interior people. Yeah. You, know, you want to find me happy and peaceful and chill? Find me in the woods. I want to tell you about this business venture I've been on for about the past seven, eight months, and it's finally come to fruition. I've been hell-bent on finding the cleanest functional mushroom supplement on the planet, and that all kind of stemmed from the psychedelic treatment I did, came out of it, got a ton of benefits, haven't had a drop of alcohol in almost two years. I'm more in the moment with my family. And that led me down researching the benefits of just everyday functional mushrooms. And I started taking some supplements. I found some coffee replacements. I even repped a brand. And, you know, it got to the point where I just wanted the finest ingredients available, no matter where they come from. And it, it, it got to this point where I was just going to start my own brand. And so we started going to trade shows and and looking for the finest ingredients. And in doing that, I ran into this guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name's Laird Hamilton, and his wife, Gabby Reese. And they have an entire line of supplements with all the finest ingredients. And we got to talking, turns out they have the perfect functional mushroom supplement. It's actually called Performance Mushrooms. And this has everything. It's USDA organic. It's got chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane, miyataki. This stuff is amazing for energy balance, for cognition. Look, just being honest, see a lot of people taking care of their bodies. I do not see a lot of people taking care of their brain. This is the product, guys. And so we got to talking and our values seemed very aligned. We're both into the functional mushrooms. And after a lot of back and forth, I am now a shareholder in the company. I have a small amount of ownership and I'm just, look, I'm just really proud to be repping and be a part of the company that's making the best functional mushroom supplement on the planet. You can get this stuff at LairdSuperfoods.com. You can use the promo code SRS, that'll get you 20% off these performance mushrooms or anything in the store. They got a ton of good stuff. Once again, that's LairdSuperfoods.com. Use the promo code SRS, that gets you 20% off. You guys are going to love this stuff, I guarantee it. You know, find me on the side of a mountain looking for elk you know like just find me sitting on my front porch there's i i do 99 of my work on my front porch i hate being inside it doesn't take me very long for it i i gotta get outside man um i'd rather work out outside i'd rather run outside you're not catching me on a treadmill i can't do it won't do it yeah i do get on the stair mill but it's because where I live, there are no hills. Uh, and to prepare for the mountain walks that I like, I got to get on that stair mill. But yeah, you know, some of the don'ts, you know, don't drink alcohol. If there is one thing I can share with guys, and let's face it, man, when I, when I see these, these influential guys, you know, 
potential mentors in our community, you know, posting their stuff about drinking whiskey and stuff like that. You know, this is a fine whatever whiskey. Like, man, it's poison. Yeah. Like by definition, alcohol is poisonous. It can kill us. There are some medicinal uses of alcohol, but having a nightcap to settle down to go to sleep, that's not a medicinal use, right? You're potentially an alcoholic and that's different. You're poisoning yourself. You're poisoning your system. You're poisoning your brain. How do you expect? You know, what I mean, you, can't, you don't put diesel fuel in a freaking Ferrari. Yeah, and that's what you're doing. And how long have you been? How long have you been sober? Almost 13 years, I think. 13 uh, years. Yeah, and man, I used to drink. Congratulations. I used to drink like a considerable. I, I was, I, I would say, I was in the top 10 of drinkers in our community. I was pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, had a good <laughs> a time. Us, you know, you know, I was right up there with some of the best of us. You know, my favorite drink for the longest time was uh, tequila on the rocks. And I would drink tequila shots and chase it with tequila on the rocks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, what were you doing, man? Yeah. Uh, you know, we'd come home from a trip. There were three or four of us all living in Wellington. And we would stay on the Rocky time zone. You know, get up, go to bed at seven, eight in the morning get up four or five in the afternoon, go to the gym, eat, pick up beer, start drinking, and then go out every night. Every night while we were home for, you know, two or three, four weeks, whatever we were home for. And, um, you know, when you're young and single, it might be an okay lifestyle. doesn't mean it's healthy. Certainly not, especially, you know, sleeping around, risking that, risking having an unwanted pregnancy or risking an STD. And honestly, it's just not healthy for us, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Melissa came along. We have a pretty funny story about how, you know, of course, I always tell it that she stalked me for like three years and I finally gave in. It's my story. I can tell it however I want. She's not here. Um, when she watches this, which she probably won't, you know what I mean? She doesn't want to listen to me talk. Uh, if she watched this, she would be like, you're so full of shit. You know, I'm like, no, she stalked me. Um, but no, we, we kept bouncing off of each other. And when we finally got together, you know, she was drinking a little bit. She's a complete nerd. She was top of her class in, you know, junior high, high school, scholarships. I was smoking weed and doing blow, <laughs> you know, drinking a lot in high school. She would have never hung out with me, right? I was just a misbehaved kid. And, you know, was I misbehaving because my mom died? I mean, I'm sure it didn't help. Right. And looking back, like I can, I can see where like, you know, teachers cut me breaks. They felt sorry for me and stuff like that. But me and Melissa got together, man, and she was very fit, um, liked to do outdoor stuff. I mean, before I met her, she was hiking in every national park. She had been ice climbing, loved to climb. She's a monkey, man. She's got like legs that are this long and like a wingspan. Like a, she's got like a, a spine and torso of a six foot tall person but her legs make her five two so like i mean the chick can do 25 dead hang pull-ups so she loves to climb i don't like to climb not technical climb so our compromise was we were gonna we started we were doing a bunch of the 14ers out in colorado we'd hop hop on a flight from sea level and in two days now we're on top of a 14er so we started our relationship out with some suffering and uh it just kept going from there and next thing i know we were you know, and, you know, whatever, 
iron triathlons and ultra marathons and just name it, right? Powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting. And, you know, she was very much into the CrossFit competition stuff beginning. Like she went to the CrossFit games and stuff like that. And, but because of all that physical fitness stuff, you know, it was hard to maintain a drinking problem. Yeah. And that's why I sobered up. It wasn't necessarily like a, you know, I need to stop doing this because it's interfering with my life. Actually, it was just part of my life. It was part of our, part of the community's social thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was the old joke? We're the healthiest alcoholics on the planet, which is completely not true. You know, uh, two things can't exist together. We might be physically fit alcoholics. That's yeah. different. So anyway, yeah, she came along, man, and... Um, Melissa's not like a, she's not like an angel in the sense of like, she's soft and nurturing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like Melissa can be soft and nurturing. She's a hard ass. You know, she's more of the, hey, Tony, pull your head out of your ass. You know what I mean? I picked up a little bit of that at uh, breakfast this morning. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I said, people don't realize, like a lot of people think I'm like kind of a, a, you know, aggressive personality and I'm not even close to her, dude. Not even close. She is, she is, I'm yeah. talking, you want to talk about target focus, man. If she would get something, you know. Well, let's, let's yeah. get to that. Let's do this. In, I like to do things in chronological order. So if you don't mind, let's start with your childhood. So where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in New Bern, North Carolina, which is central, north and south, but as, almost as far east as you can. Pamlico County, it's right on the Pamlico Sound. And then, of course, the Outer Banks are off of the Sound. My dad uh, my dad had moved before I was born back from Indiana. So I guess we can back up and give you their, their, a little bit of their story. Uh, my mom and my dad met in Wilmington, same place me and Melissa met. Weird. Kind of funny. My dad was at Fort Bragg, and my mom was going to school in Raleigh, and they met at the Azalea uh, festival. It's a big springtime festival in Wilmington, parades and all that stuff. And they met. My dad, I remember him saying, he was like, I couldn't sleep. I needed to be with her. Like, he was like, I met her. I fell in love with her. And uh, so that was kind of cool. And I was like, you know, it's not a whole lot different than Melissa. Even though I tried really hard, I, I really thought Melissa was just kind of a punk. <laughs> you know? And, and my feelings for her when I first met her, it was weird. Like, I was just drawn to her, and I had never felt it before, so I was a little weird about it, you know? Uh, and it's kind of funny that remembering what my dad would say about my mom, how he just fell in love with her. And that's kind of cool. Because um, I wouldn't say either he nor I are necessarily, like, hopeless romantics by any means, but, you know, love's a real thing. And um, so it's kind of a parallel there as well. So anyway... They wound up getting married, but they moved to Indiana where my father was from. Well, my father's from Western Virginia, and then coal mining fell apart in the 50s. His family moved up uh, like all the coal miners and went to work for General Motors or Ford or whatever. Um, so he was his, his father was working in plants for General Motors outside and around Indianapolis. So anyway, my dad went to, after he got out of the Army, they moved up there. He started working for Delco Ramey, which was a subsidiary or whatever of General Motors. And twice he got passed up for a supervisor job um, due to affirmative action. 
Hmm. And he was really frustrated. He's like, here I am busting my ass, working my ass off. And I, I, just, I got passed up two years in a row for promotion because of affirmative action. And in his mind, he felt like, you know, he was more qualified than the people who got put in those positions. And he was frustrated. So he decided to leave that world, which was a good thing overall, moved back down to North Carolina. And um, he went to work for a, uh, a seafood company. And he ultimately bought it. And we went from being, you know, trailer park kids, a true living in a trailer, white trash rednecks. I watched my father. I participated, right? He didn't have health, so I was his labor <laughs> as soon as I was old enough to be his labor. And he, um, I watched him build that business. I watched him work, you know, and, and talk about set the example. I mean, that dude left before I got up and got home. Uh, you know, we, we did dinner at six o'clock every night and he would come in, eat and get up and go back to work, you know? Um, and I watched that. And then, like I said, as soon as I was old enough, big enough, or in some case, I don't know that I was old enough, but he still needed help. And so I went to work with him and I got to see it. I got to experience it. And, and the man worked, I'm talking nonstop, no breaks, breakfast, lunch were optional. And it's funny because like, I'm so much more like him than I ever thought I was going to be. Um, I, I I like to think I got a good blend of him and my mom. Um, he was a little more hot-headed. She was a little more chill. Um, my aunts tell me that she was actually pretty hot-headed, but not with me because I was the favorite. I was the boy. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, so I never got to really see my mom lose her temper. I, I mean, like... She would give us a spanking or something, you know, like with a fly swat or something. I'd be like, ooh, ow, mom, that hurt so bad, you know. But like, you know what I mean? Like a spanking from her was like more of a principal thing than something that you were even going to learn a lesson, you know. Yeah. But then when dad got home, if it was bad enough for mom to tell him, you're going you're gonna to tell her a decent ass whooping, you know. Not abusive, a spanking. Yeah. You know, my dad never physically abused me. And don't get me wrong, when I got arrested one time, you know, we threw hands. And I lost. <laughs> My dad was a good sized fellow. He was about, I graduated high school at about a buck 65. And uh, he was he was probably about 200 pounds, you know. He was full grown and I wasn't. Um, so anyway, yeah, you know, they, they got into the seafood thing. He grew, it was called Sound, like Pamlico Sound Packing Company. And bring the product in, you know, scallops, shrimp, flounder, um, crabs, blue crabs. They were all processed at his facility, packaged, shipped to restaurants, sold to restaurants. So, you know, I could on any one day be picking crab meat or filleting fish or loading a truck with a forklift, whatever. Um, and then he and my uncle got into, uh, they, de they developed a subdivision together. So they bought like a backhoe and a small bulldozer and then they bought a, a bigger bulldozer, a D6 together. I mean, I was running those things before I could reach the pedals. Oh, wow. And uh, in some cases, some of the stuff we were doing, like putting tiles, big, big concrete tiles with the backhoe. So if you ever see those concrete tiles laying on the side of the road, there's a male and a female end. So when you lay them in, the big end being the female end, the little end, you, you, you put them in with the excavator and you drop them in and kind of snug them in. Dude, my dad would be in the ditch. Me running the bulldozer when I was like 11 years old or the, the excavator backhoe, he's in the ditch and I've got a thousand pound concrete culvert and he's guiding it in and he's trusting me with that 
Wow. I look back, I'm like, there's not an 11-year-old on this planet <laughs> that I would get anywhere near them if they were running a backhoe. And he had me doing that stuff, which ultimately carried over into my you know, adult life. Like, I never once questioned whether or not I was going to pass election. I just had something to do. I was going to go do it. And don't get me wrong, I had withdrawn from college against everyone's um, better advice. I just wanted to be an Army, man, you know? What did your dad do in the Army? Yeah, so he was an 82nd Airborne. Um, he was a ground-pounding infantry dude, and then um, and then a, a, a heavy mortarman, so like maybe the 120s, I believe. Yes, yeah, so the 120s. And then on his last bit, he was on the, the howitzers, like a 105. So okay. deaf. <laughs> you yeah. know, we're out here worried about shooting M4s with suppressors with ear pro. They were setting off cannons with no ear pro. Yeah. He was deafer as he could be, man. Couldn't hear a thing. He had, uh, uh, freaking, um, you know, hearing, hearing aids and all that stuff, but he never wore them, uh, which was always an advantage because I would be like, well, I told you. And he's like, I am. I'm like, oh, I told you. I told you I was going to do that, Dad. And he's like, oh, I was like, you must not have heard me. Of course, now I might play that game a little bit myself with uh, with Melissa. You yeah. Know, I'm supposed to, I'm like completely deaf in my right ear. I'm supposed to wear a hearing aid in my left and whatever. Um, so I always say, I, I didn't hear you say that. And she's just like. If you're 21 years or older and use nicotine or tobacco, I want to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's changing America for millions of consumers. Those of you that know who I am know that I spent a career in the SEAL teams and its Central Intelligence Agency, the majority of the time in those was conducting operations. And while on those operations, something that we did all the time was chew tobacco. It became kind of like a ritual. And I know a lot of you out there who listen to me love that ritual, and I just want you to know I get it. Black Buffalo even has long cut, and their pouches are award-winning for all you guys out there using those white portion things. Black Buffalo has bold flavors and full pouches. Black Buffalo is full of flavor. It feels legit when you pack it, and most importantly, is tobacco leaf and stem-free. So if you're 21 or older, currently use nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can buy their products there, and they ship directly to most states. Or... Check out their store locator to purchase at thousands of retail locations around the country. Born in the Midwest, raised in the South, charge ahead with Black Buffalo. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Here's the situation. You've got China, Russia, Ukraine, the border. The banks seem to be collapsing. Plus, the Chinese just negotiated with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil to drop the U.S. dollar. And most Americans, including myself, feel that we're in a recession right now. But despite all the evidence, I can't tell you what's going to happen for sure. Nobody can. Yet when it comes to your money, you should understand what's at stake. That's why I partnered with Gold Co. to possibly help at times like this. Go to SeanLikesGold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit. The kit shows you how to defend your money with precious metals and how listeners of the show could get up to $10,000 in bonus silver. Go to SeanLikesGold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit. I can't predict the future, but I can certainly prepare for it. 
So go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD now. Performance may vary. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. So was that, was that your motivation to go into the military? Or? Man, yeah, partly. But also, you know, I, can, I can trace it back to the fact that he let me watch Rambo First Blood when I was like nine. You know? Uh, running around the mountains, freaking running from these mean old police guys who were mean to veterans, you know? It was like, man, this dude is awesome. And then, you know, the Colonel spill about Green Berets being real badasses and all that. That had a lot to do with it, you know, frankly, which sounds, sounds kind of funny because I will catch myself sometimes saying, well, you know, part of our, you know, this generation watched a couple of cool movies and decided they wanted to be SEALs or Rangers or whatever. And I think back, I'm like, wait a minute. It was part of the reason why I did it too, you know? So I can't really beat up on the guys for that. You know, it's like, yeah, you know. Um, but that was part of, that was a huge part of my motivation between the fact that, you know, he did it uh, and then that movie. But I also, I mean, I feel like, you know, hunting and, and war is a lot of hunting. If you look at it like that, it, I just feel like it's part of my nature, part of my genetics whatever you want to call it. Like I am, you know, I, I don't want to say, you know, for the sake of sounding like some crazy psychopath, like that I wanted war, but you know, before the war started, you know, that was part of the thing, man. Warriors wanted to go to war. Yeah. You know, we all hear about, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the ranger prayers and that kind of stuff where, you know, you pray to the gods of war for, you know, the opportunity to test yourself in combat and all that stuff. And I never really got into anything like that, but I think it's part of it. You know, I think there are just simply some people are genetically cut out for certain types of work or whatever. And um, I was drawn to it. And uh, then, I mean, really, when I joined the military, I, I couldn't afford college. Dad was trying to, you know, he was still really trying to recover from my mom's death, man. That poor guy. I watched him for two years come home after work, sit in his recliner in his chair or whatever, and stare at a TV that wasn't on. I would come in at 11, 12 at night on a school night. He lost control, and he didn't have the energy, you know? I was just doing whatever I wanted and staying out late and misbehaving, and I would come in, and he'd still be sitting in that recliner. Get up the next morning, brush his teeth, go to work. Uh, he, was, he was lost. He went from 200, 205-pound dude to 170 pounds, not eating, just morning morning and um so yeah man freaking he wanted me to go to college you know so i tried and i went to nc state and i say that i was enrolled there i didn't really attend class uh you know got there and it was man you know there's like 10 maybe 30 attractive girls in pamlico county now I'm at NC State University, and there are so many distractions <laughs> everywhere. You want me to go to, you want me to, go to class? You know, um, eight o'clock in the morning. I got stuff to do, man. Uh, girls to chase and stuff. So college just wasn't working out, man. Dad was trying to pay, you know, and help us with college funding and all that. At this point, my older sister's looking at medical school, and I was like, you can't afford it. There's no way. So I withdrew and joined the army. Um, and, uh, you know, so my sisters got to finish their college and all that kind of stuff. I fully intended on going back. Oddly enough, I wanted to be a doctor. 
and my sister became one. And she actually quit practicing and has become more, she's, uh, she's in the business side of uh, biotech world now. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's got a master's in business and all kinds of stuff, which is weird. She went to become a doctor. And then ultimately, before she became business side, I was the business guy, you know. And that's definitely a, a genetic pass down. My dad was a, a businessman, um, an entrepreneur, always hustling, you know, always into something and, and was successful at everything he ever did uh, because he was pretty methodical but also worked really hard. Um, so, yeah, man, freaking, I withdrew from college like my second year, second semester on like a Tuesday and signed all the paperwork, went home, NC State to the house was about three hours, got home, he wasn't there. I was like, shit, threw some running shoes on and go for a run. Sure enough, ran into him. He's like, what are you doing here? Like he knew, he knew something was up. You know what I mean? He's like, what now type of thing, you know? And uh, my stepmother, he remarried to uh, an amazing woman. Um, turned, she turned out to be one of my best friends. Sadly, she died of cancer. Oh man, man. My dad just took it in the gut, you know? But she was awesome. And he, you know, so I went up to his truck and he's like, what in the, are you doing home? Like, he just knew. And I was like, um, I enlisted in the Army. And he's like, you, what? You know? <laughs> I'll never forget. Uh, Carol, my stepmother, she just reached over and put her hand on his shoulder, and she said, let's go on home, and when he gets here, we'll talk about it. Let's see what he has to say. And he just went, all right, I'll see you at the house. You know, because he was lucky, man. He had an amazing woman with my mother and then an amazing woman, an amazing wife with uh, my stepmom. And she was cool, man. My stepmom was like Martha Stewart on steroids, man. Like just, I could come home and she'd throw together a dinner and there'd be like, you know, like, why did you do this whole layout? And she's like, it's just what I do, you know? And, uh, but not prissy, you know, not, yeah. not a priss pot or anything like that. Hell, she was in Afghanistan in the late 60s. Oh, with nice. With her friends. With the hippies. Yeah, smoking the, the, the kush bud and all that stuff, right? So, and she had grown up in California. So she was a California girl, but not a, not like a modern weirdo California, like just a cool <laughs> chick. Not a right? modern weirdo yeah. California. You know, like a, she grew up out there and, and but like, I, I guess kind of in the, in the, in the mountains. I'm not sure exactly where in California she grew up, but um, cool, cool woman. So I got home and he's like, what in the world, dude? I'm like, so I met this Green Beret, guy named Jason McKenzie. He was doing uh, the Green to Gold program at NC State, and he told me about uh, told me about the National Guard, SF, and how it's like the best kept secret in the military. Uh, he was a third group guy, and then the 19th group guy, and uh, uh, like I said, was getting his commission. And ultimately, he went on to be an, uh, over at the unit, and I talked to him in 15 years. Should should definitely reach out to that guy and see what he's up to these days. Um, but yeah, because, you know, I met him. He's like, yeah, bro, let me tell you about this National Guard stuff. So I enlisted with um, 2nd Battalion and 19th Group up in West Virginia. And uh, there was, it was before the 18 X-Ray or the 18 Baby, the SF Baby program, which you may have heard. It's usually kind of, or can be a derogatory term. But it was basically an SF Baby program where I came in through the Guard it was kind of a backdoor, and that was why some of the back then the National Guard SF guys kind of got looked at because on active duty, 
the whole idea of being able to try out for special forces, you had to have done time somewhere else in the army. Whether you were a mechanic, a ranger, didn't matter. You had to be an E4 promotable to go to special forces selection. So you done, you, you've already spent three to four years in the military um, and you were bringing that to the table and that was important in special forces. But the guard had figured out a way to backdoor that stuff. So we would go to basic, uh, AIT or whatever MOS, airborne school, typically to like a little career promotion progression school. They used to call it uh, PLDC or whatever. It's basically to get promoted. So you were eligible to get a promotion from uh, E4 to E5, little career. So you did all that stuff and then you go to selection. If you pass selection, straight to the Q course. So zero to hero. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was the beginning of the 18 X-ray program. And like I said, active duty guys looked down their nose at us. Damn, time. I thought that program was in, I mean, what, what year is this? So this is 97. Shit, I didn't yeah. realize that program but it was, was only that for old. the guard. Active okay. duty had no, none of this program yet. And that's why when active duty put it back in place, because 18 X-ray or 18 baby program, uh, SF baby program was a thing in the 80s. And then it went away. So when they brought it back in what 2003 time frame ish, like, oh, dude, everyone was upset. Of course, I'm over here going, eh, I mean, <laughs> you cool with me, right? Yeah. You know, and uh, and don't get me wrong, there's exceptions to every rule. I, I would say, you know, I already knew how to do a lot of things. You know, when I got to my first ODA, that definitely qualified. And and when they looked at me in selection, I had to go to the board like three times. Because I was young. I was younger than any other candidate. I also was not an E4. <laughs> so you're supposed to be an E4 promotable. One of my one of my buds from the unit got hurt before he was supposed to go to SFAS. So I get a phone call. Hey, are you ready to go to selection? And I'm like, I not yes. <laughs> you know, but no. I hadn't been rucking or anything because I'd been in basic training and airborne school and that. No time to really go ruck march and get ready for selection. And they're like, well, we got a slot next week. Do you want it? And me, being afraid to say no, like I might not get another chance, being young and dumb, said yes. And I went and I passed. But at the end, it was kind of funny because I got called into the board and they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, Sergeant Major. I want to be a badass Green Bray or whatever, you know? He's like, that's not what I'm asking. How and why are you here as an E3? Like, you're not even supposed to be here. How we didn't catch you all the way through this class and boot you, I don't know. And I'm like, Roger, Sergeant Major. And he's like, so why should I allow you to continue? Why should I pass you? I was like, well, Sergeant Major, I get it. And I understand. I understand that you need to bring something to the table. And that's why the rule is in place. So I gave him a kind of a brief, you know, up, kind of like, hey, these are my capabilities, these are the things I've done in life. Um, you know, I ran my first business when I was 13 years old, uh, you know, on and on and on. And, uh, you know, and, and now his head, he was like, all right, get out, get the fuck out. Roger Storm, man. An hour later or so, get back in here, you know, go back to the board. They grilled me again. And they were just like looking to see if I was mature enough. And I guess I rated it. Graduation ceremony. Uh, the the captain, the company commander over selection. You know, he's handing out the diplomas or whatever, the certificates, and he's like, you know, Captain Smith, congratulations, Staff Sergeant 
whatever, corporal, sergeant, 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 specialist, 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 specialist private for. <laughs> and he looks at the first one, and the first one goes, you know? And he's looking, and he's like, is this right? You know? And I mean, there's, you know, 40 dudes left. We're yeah. in a small room out there, you know, we're all dirty, nasty, and, you know, the, no, no fancy ceremony. And they're like, yeah, he goes, well, all right, then, private first class counting. Welcome to the regiment. And I'm like, Roger. But like I said, man, I think I was, what, 27? So I'm 20, 22 years old. So I wasn't, you know, an 18-year-old right off the street private either, you know. So luckily, you know, they picked me up yeah. uh, and uh, let me go to the Q course. Real quick, yeah. just backtracking. You said you ran your first business at 13 years old. What was that? Mowing. But not like lawn mowing. Uh, I would, I had to, I rented my dad's tractor and heavy bush hog. And I would go to the realtors and say, hey, this is what I do. I clean up your property. I'll, you know, bush hog, uh, clear out this piece of property, the undergrowth, so you can see the property. You'll be able to see all the way to the water. Uh, and then I'll take my, you know, heavy duty weed eater and clean around the trees and you'll be able to see it. It'll be beautiful. You're going to sell. And at 13 years old, I was charging $100 an hour for mowing. And you're talking what? 88, 89? It's oh, a wow. lot of money for a dad on 13, 14, yeah. 15, 16 year old. And by the time I was 16 year old, I would go work for a couple hours. You know, heck, I could go work for four or five hours on Saturday. That's four or 500 bucks, knock off, go to the beach. <laughs> you were making $100 an hour That's, yeah. at 13 years old back and in I was 88? You said? I was cheap. Other people doing the same jobs were, you know, 150 dollars an hour. Um, so I was cheap, and yeah, it was crazy, insane money, especially back then, especially for a 13, 14 year old. But here was the deal, right? I didn't have driver's license, so I would drive the tractor down the highway to my job sites. <laughs> I, you know, so I like when I say I watched my dad work and hustle. Now, don't get me wrong, right? So I had costs. I had to maintain the the equipment. You know, keep it greased, keep the oils changed. For you can, if something broke, I had to fix it. You know, um, so he, while he helped me, right? Obviously, put it in motion. Um, he made me run it like a real business. You know, um, he made you rent the tractor from him, huh? That's yeah. awesome. And it was like eighteen dollars an hour. So now here I am, already, you know, not a hundred dollars an hour anymore. You know. Uh, yeah, he he was smart, man. You know, looking back, I was like, you know, like when I was a kid, I was like, man, and he's just an asshole. But you know what? I mean, like I said, he prepared me. You know, and, and like I said, by today's standards, you know, not lovey dovey, huggy kissy, you know, father, but not abusive, not anywhere near what I would call abuse. I mean, he set me up for success, um, and just because. And then, of course. You know, while I didn't bring it up to the sergeant major of the board, you know, it didn't take me long to figure out, you know, the exact same hustle for mowing, mowing grass also kind of worked for selling grass. Um, so, yeah, man, as a bad kid, I was selling a little weed and then started selling a little cocaine um, because return on investment. Um, I mean, I learned that shit quick, man. Freaking, you know, the money on weed versus the money on a little cocaine was big time difference and you know, i was bad uh, just me and a couple of my buddies man we were you know, what age were you when you started selling drugs 16 ish how long did it take you to move from weed to cocaine 
few months. That's it. Yeah, it was quick. How'd you get my cousins you get were a drug addicts? Cocaine? My cousins. My cousins were all and still are. Well, the ones that are drug addicts are fucking turds. Excuse my language. Um, it was just readily available. Rural North Carolina, nothing else to do. And it didn't take a genius to sell that shit. I mean, it sells itself. Mm-hmm. There's no marketing involved. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's supply and demand, and that is it in that market space. Back in the 80s. I got arrested. I got arrested for possession. Oh, you got arrested? Yeah. How'd you get, how did that? Uh... I got lucky, be right honest with you. Did you sell it on undercover? No. Uh, they had been basically watching. And it's a small place, man. Everybody knew everything. Um, but they were they were watching, and then they, I'm not sure exactly 100%, but they knew me and my buddy went to the supplier's house that night. And they set up on us. They set up a little roadblock because they anticipated us going from here to our other buddy's house. But instead of going to my bud's house via the main roads, we went through the hunting club roads. I mean, we're drinking, you know what I mean? So we don't get on the pavement. And you could drive, you could drive from one end of North Carolina to the other and never hit pavement, you know, across it. But hunting club roads, you know, gravel roads. And so we went to my bud's house through this back way. We left and went through their roadblock the opposite direction. So they, they like, they, they had no clue. They were like, well, wait a minute. Blue lights, you know. And so what I dropped off at his house would have gotten me four to six years first offense. Wow. And all I had was like a little, a bump or whatever you want to call it, like just enough for me and my bud to get high on the way home. You know, nothing. Less than one gram is what I was charged with. Residue almost. But any amount of cocaine in North Carolina is a state felony. It upset a lot of people, man. You know, my dad was well-respected as an honest, hardworking dude in the community. And here I am acting like an asshole. And people were basically like, hey, man, you've gone too far. We get it. You're still reacting from your mom's death and all that stuff. I will never blame my behavior on that. Was it a factor? Of course, because nothing is two plus two. Everything's an equation. So was it a factor? Certainly. Did I manipulate and exploit a little bit? Probably. You know, I knew people felt sorry for me. I knew if I missed a few classes here and there in school, I could probably get away with it Um, because people loved me. You know, it's a small place. And, you know, the people that I went to school with in the 11th grade were the same people I went to school with in kindergarten. It literally didn't change, you know. Graduated with 105 people. All right, small place. So anyway, I was lucky. Um, My neighbor, who used to be my babysitter, um, was a new attorney. And unbeknownst to me, while she was in college, she partied pretty hard. And she came and picked me up. She gave me kind of a scolding. And then she also explained to me, like, hey, man, shit happens. And now you have a choice. You can fix yourself or you can continue this path and you will go to jail. Right? Um, she actually went on to become a, um, a superior court judge in North Carolina. She's still one of my very best friends. Um, her name's Karen Alexander, a mentor, someone I trust, like through and through. If I if I need someone to tell me what's up, I can call Karen Alexander and she will break it down for me. Uh, she was a really good, a really good judge, a fair judge, but a hard judge if you 
you crossed her or you you crossed the line as far as the wall goes. She had a lot of um you know there's a letter of the law and then there's the um the spirit of the law and she had a good way of knowing the difference. Hmm. You know what I mean? But luckily between her the sheriff, right? Um everyone knew everybody. Uh you know, they all basically got me together and they were like, "Hey man, you don't get another chance." Right? Here's what's going to go down. You're going to do a bunch of community service, and we're going to delay this case, right? And then, if you don't get in trouble for the next year, we're going to reevaluate. A year later or so, they put it down to paraphernalia, but suspended the sentence. So for another year, I had to continue to behave. And uh, so I didn't get any more trouble. Um, I didn't touch drugs again. Didn't touch them. Didn't use them. Didn't sell them. Still saw some of the same dudes and friends and stuff. Um, Cocaine's a hard drug to come off of. I, you know, I'll tell you, man, I was never, ever even close to being addicted. Really? Cocaine was fun, and that was about it. And it was a, a business, right? And, you know, you don't get high on your own supply. Um, the party was fun because, you know, I mean, for lack of better saying it, right, like when— Girls are using cocaine. It's a fun party. Yeah. And I was a youngin. And a lot of my customers were adults. My partner in crime, man, I, I left, went to the Q course. He got rolled up. He got busted. He got six years first offense. This is just a good old redneck boy. I mean, his hobbies are deer hunting and selling cocaine. Six years, man, in a medium security Facility. Well, you know who's in medium security facilities? Nonviolent, freaking cocaine selling buddy of mine, just dude who likes to go hunting, and dudes who are murderers that are in there for something else. Right? Medium security, they got real bad dudes in there. Dude got stabbed a couple times, man. Um, and he did four and a half years of that six year sentence as a youngin. For some, some blow. Yeah. It would have been me. I would have no doubt been with him, involved, if I had been there. So the Army, unbeknownst to me, saved, saved me from that. And, you know, there's no coming back from that type of stuff, man. You're a felon. You go to federal prison. Like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life if you're a felon? You can't have a gun. You're not going to get hired at a good job, et cetera, et cetera. So, it, you know, the... Special Forces, the Q course, all that. I mean, it, it saved me from myself. And, you know, I'm, I was a, you know, I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption that you were probably the wild child kid who didn't pay attention in class and stuff. You know, we, I mean, we're a, we're a stereotype. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we fit most SF or soft guys, not just SF, right? Like soft guys, we're the kids who didn't pay attention in class. We were bored, right? Let's face it. I mean, if you've got a GT score of 110, which, we all do. It's a requirement, right? You're not an idiot. And I was bored. I was just... Weren't uh, challenged. And, and, and I have a little dyslexia. So you think Pamlico County public school system had any clue on how to educate? I mean, when I was in like the fourth grade, I was already a grade ahead in math, but could barely read. Because the words didn't look like what they were saying they were supposed to look like. So I basically had to teach myself to read. And I don't know that I even read that well till probably high school. 
And even now, man, when I read stuff, it's weird. Yeah. It's self-taught. Some words just look backwards, you know? And sometimes I write them backwards, even still. If I'm talking and writing on a whiteboard, I might write E-H-T instead of the weird stuff, you know? And every now and then people pick up on it, but, you know, kind of learn how to get around it. But, um, yeah, man, I was lucky. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is, I have no problem saying this, and this is controversial. People say white privilege doesn't exist. I don't know if it was white privilege. It was good standing in the community privilege of my father. Had I been some son of someone else, you know, who, or I didn't have a father, I mean, fuck it, I'll break it down. Let's say I was a, a poor black kid in a trailer park selling crack or, or selling the same, same charge. I'd have gone to jail. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. Keeping everything bottled up can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sean today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sean. When I first started this whole podcasting thing, an online store was about as far from my mind as you can get. And now, most of you already know this, but I'm selling... Vigilance Elite Gummy Bears online. We actually have an entire merch collection that's coming soon. And let me tell you, it is so easy because I'm using a platform that is extremely user-friendly, and that's Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I really like about Shopify is it prompts you all the things that you want to do with your web store, like... Connect your social media accounts, write blog posts, just have a blog in general. Shopify actually prompts you to do this. You want people to leave reviews under your items? You can do that on Shopify. It's very simple. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to the other leading commerce platforms. Shopify is a global force for millions of entrepreneurs in over 175 countries and power 10% of all e-commerce platforms here in the United States. You can sign up right now for $1 a month, it's shopify.com slash Sean. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Sean now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash Sean. So it wasn't a, a necessarily a privilege on my part, but it was a privilege, a consideration. Maybe not privilege, but it, the way my deal was handled was because my dad was so well-respected. And people like Karen Alexander, 
my attorney at the time, uh, Marcus Chestnut, these people, the sheriff, Billy Sawyer, they all saw potential in me. And they'll, they'll tell me, they've all told me since, they're like, you had potential of being good. And we also knew you had potential of going the other direction. And we knew we were gambling on you. Luckily for me, they took the gamble. I am, all, I will always be in debt to those people I just mentioned, and, and many more that, and some people I probably don't even know were involved. You know, in making sure I got out. That's an interesting take that I wasn't expecting, and uh, yeah, you know, when you put it like that, yeah. Like I, I said, it wasn't, uh, wasn't right anything on, on me. It was yeah. him. And luckily they, they saw a little bit of potential because they all knew me since I was born. And with my older sister clearly doing awesome things by this point, they were like, man, he, he might <laughs> he might turn out to be halfway decent. So that's why like the Q course and, and military type stuff, right? I, it just fit for me. You know, I grew up hunting. You know, oh, you're going to give me guns? Cool. Uh, and I'm going to get to play with explosives? Ooh, this sounds fun. I used to maybe play with some PVC pipe and some smokeless powder when I was a kid, you know? Um, yeah, we had reloading supplies, you know what I mean? I was a youngin, you know? Um, so I was like, okay, this sounds cool, you know? And if it wasn't for that stuff, dude, who knows where I'd have wound up. Did you did you go to, did you join the National Card to get into the SF Baby yep, Program? Straight in. Okay, straight in. so you knew. So it was Rambo. Rambo brought you to SF. Straight to it. Never once did I entertain any of the other special operations. So what happens when you what happens when you go through SF as a National Guard person? Because so that's only one weekend a month. Right. right. Um, so SF National Guard is nothing like regular guard. Okay. Um, so when you pass selection and you go to the Q course, you get put on active duty. You don't okay. belong to the National Guard anymore. You belong to first Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg. Right. You are now your own active duty. Okay. Um, and you don't belong to the guard. And it's for the Q course. Whether it, like for me, it was uh, back then, it was the Q course. Wait. Yeah, Q course, and then language school, and then seer school. Uh, so it was an active duty block for that entire time, so almost two years. Um, oddly enough, I was actually supposed to go to the medical course. Like I said, I wanted to be a doctor. So I'm like, I'm going to go take the 18 Delta course. I wanted to be a medic. And I broke my femur the weekend before I was supposed to re report for the Delta course, uh, race and motocross. And so it took me almost a year or about seven months before I could say, all right, I'm ready. Well, because of that seven-month delay, they were like, uh, you might consider just to, you know, because they, they wanted me on a team. You know, needs of the army, needs of the unit. They're like, hey man, your next like your next Delta course won't be for four months, but there's a Charlie course starting next week. You want to go to the Charlie course, which engineer explosives. Again, being young, I'm thinking I better not turn this down because they might look at me next time and be like, oh, we gave you an opportunity and you turned it down. So I said, yeah, Roger that. So next thing you know, I'm in the uh, engineer course, which is you know, much shorter than the 18 Delta course. But it was still stimulating, for the most part. You know, uh, cal calculation and placement of explosives was algebra. A lot of guys struggled with that. But I mean, I had already taken trigonometry and all kinds of stuff in, in school. And, and like I said, I was good at math. Uh, 
So the, the Charlie course was not hard for me. Uh, me and a couple other guys, both National Guard dudes, uh, uh, we caused our own problems with some of the National Guard or some of the active duty guys, especially like the E6 Rangers who already didn't like us, <laughs> you know, because we're National Guard. We were all three PT studs, so they gave us respect. We went through the SUT phase, and we did well. And they're like, okay, maybe these little National Guard punks are okay. But during the, during the course, right, they were, we were going and partying. Well, Fort Bragg's in North Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina. I had friends at every university. Girl friends at mm -hmm. every university. I was like the damn tour guide. You know, where y'all want to go this weekend? I talked to such and such at ECU, you know, uh, UNCW, party schools, right? Chapel Hill. And um, so while guys were like doing study groups, me and um, Ben and Jake, those three National Guard guys, right? We're partying. We're going places. Because uh, all three of us had had, uh, you know, more math. So we weren't struggling. We didn't need to go to study hall and that kind of stuff, which, like I said, caused problems with some of the, you know, staff sergeants and sergeants. Like, you know, we we got smoked and shit, you know, because back then, right, there's cadre. Well, while cadre's not looking, the senior guys in the course could you up. Um, when the three of us got uh, promoted from E4 to E5, we were in the, the Charlie course and the cadre rolled up one morning and they were lined up putting them stripes in our collarbones in our chest you know the cadre was like oh good god <laughs> like they just turned around <laughs> and left they're like we don't have nothing to do with this right my st students we were the lowest ranking everyone in the class was higher ranking than us so everyone yeah. got got a hit we're covered in blood man uh i remember mario volpe mario was built like a gorilla still is um, he was the last one in line. He was the most senior dude in the class. Man, he hit me, and I took a knee. And I was just like, I mean, my CNS is shot from just getting, you know, 25 dudes pounding my brachial plexus, you know, putting a E5 rank into my chest, you know. And uh, he hit me, and I was just like, oh. Had I had, if I had had to do one more, man, I don't know that I'd finish the ceremony. <laughs> Funny story, man, freaking, I'm running for Congress a couple years ago. I had not seen Mario Volpe since the day we graduated the Q course. So 20 years later, someone said, uh, hey, man, a friend of mine's son is about to go to Army, but would, would you know is interested in helping you out at the range, working, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, you know, tell him to punch me a text. Hey, good afternoon, sir. My name is Jake Volpe, blah, blah. You know, I'm getting ready to join the Army next year. You know, I was hoping that I could help around, maybe, you know, help you with classes and learn some stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kid shows up, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, do you know Mario Volpe? And he's like, yeah, he's my dad. Small world, bro. Wow. Small world. So now his son helps me a little bit before he joined the Army. Now he's, I think he's in RASP as we speak, Ranger selection uh ranger training whatever and um yeah small world um but yeah you know that that route into sf was still kind of unique back then it was it was a, a well-kept secret and even to this day uh you know i'll tell guys you know I'm like hey man if you go active duty and you go to selection it's just like with you guys at buds if you don't pass now it's needs the army 
and you're going to the 82nd Airborne, you're going to 10th Mountain, and you're going to pick up trash. Yep. You know, for, like, for you guys, I know it's like scraping boats <laughs> or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I, the only thing I can think of is like, God was just looking out, man, because it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't smart enough. I didn't have the wherewithal. I didn't have the essay, whatever you want to call it. I didn't have the bandwidth to understand the totality of my situation and how things just lined up and happened. Like meeting Jason McKenzie at NC State. I had never met Jason McKenzie at NC State. I would have continued on through college, maybe or not, and maybe got in trouble, maybe became a doctor. I don't know. All right. I don't get into that i just know that these things happen in this amazing you know a sequence that put me at fort bragg now don't get me wrong man i wasn't 100 percent better when i was at the q course i mean i was still chasing girls around and hell uh, so one of those guys i mentioned ben bittner uh he got killed back in 13 dude was a stud he was better than everybody else you know what i mean and he he knew it and he had a special way of rubbing it in you know you go do a ruck march he'd be sitting there when you got there with a dip in and an empty mre just to kind of show you he's been there a while yeah you know if you did 20 pull-ups he'd do 25 and be like man you're getting you're doing well man you'll be at 25 before you know it that guy just a stud uh he and Mike Glover were on a team together, so we always joke about him. Like, Ben was just the greatest asshole you ever met. You know? <laughs> and he was a stud, man. Name something, he, he could be good at it. You know, he was just better than everyone else. And, um, yeah, man, he got smoked uh, in a baited ambush in 2013. Damn. Um, and I'll tell you, man, it's 13, right? We'd been at war for 12 years at that point. Had a few friends get smoked. When Ben died and I got the, the news, I was traveling down I-40. Melissa was with me. We were a brand new couple. And I was like, wait, what? And I pulled over and threw up. It made me sick in my stomach. I couldn't. How, how? Ben? Like he's. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, you are not immortal. You know? Yeah. I had kind of fallen in. You know, I had some pretty bad injuries. I could, you know, broke my back in 05, got blown up good in 2009. I still thought I was indestructible, you know? I keep keep getting getting back in the fight after getting scuffed up. And then, man, it was the news that he died. I was just like, wow, wow, okay. The, good, the bad guys have good days too, yeah. you know? If you yes, can sucker do. that dude and his team into a baited ambush, and they did, you know? They set up IEDs, shot at them. They set up IEDs at the places you would run for cover. Damn. Yeah, his medic got got blown up, and and uh, he was trying to evacuate, and he hit one too. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, uh, that dude, man, what an amazing guy. But he and I, like, we went to Wilmington one time and parked in a place we shouldn't have. Well, we come out of the folks we're hanging out with their apartment, and the truck's gone. And we got to be back at Bragg for PT in a couple hours. Oh shit. Dude, we looked up the um, the tow truck address in the phone book because you know it's late nineties. Had the <laughs> the young ladies we were hanging out with take us to the tow truck place. They're closed, so we hopped the fence, 
popped the lock on the place, got the keys to my truck, and drove to freaking back to brag. I stole my truck back, and it's still stealing. Right after PT, right, freaking, I go tell the cadre basically what happened. I'm like, the one cadre I felt like I trust, luckily. And he's like, get your ass back to Wilmington and apologize to them dudes. He's like, he's like, I don't care if you need to go down on that guy. Get down there and make sure he's not pressing charges. Roger that. Drive back to Wilmington and um, pulled in. And the dude was like, because <laughs> I'm driving my truck. He just towed me a few hours earlier. And uh, I was like, hey, sir, I just got to tell you, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. Luckily for me, dude was a former Marine. And he was like, bro, he's like, on one side, I want to fight you. He was older, man. He's like 60-something. He's like, on one side, he's like, I feel like I owe you an ass whooping. But on the other side, I kind of want to shake your hand. He's like, I, I, he's like, man, that's, that's just kind of cool. He's like, because I didn't mess anything up. We didn't yeah. break into his place, you know, credit card pop on the on the little crappy door handle and uh, or doorknob. And uh, But, yeah, man, he was like, right on. Get the hell out of here. He's like, just get the hell out of here. And he let me go. Damn, dude. I mean, he could have ruined my career. Yes, he could He could have put me in jail right then and there. And um, so we were always into something, you know, um, just like everybody else in soft one way or the other. <sighs> Luckily, we passed the Q course. And, you know, the cool thing was, um, had I gone to the medic course, I'd have missed the first push in Afghanistan. I'd have still been in language school. So what year did you what year did you graduate the Q course? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Mm -hmm. Actually, ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yeah. So we got three year time period before nine eleven. Yeah, did some did a shooting package. Cool. For, I mean, I I got out, went straight to our. It wasn't Safalk yet. Like our shooting package is called Special Forces Advanced Urban Combat, and it was SOT Special Operations Tactics, and they were creating Safardic. Safardic was already a thing, but that was, you know, hostage rescue and really for the direct action companies, you know, they needed a CQB package, shooting package for the regular ODA. So they created this, as it was ev uh, evolving, it was SOT, and then it became SOFAP. And it's mostly standardized, and the proponent is, you know, the unit. Um, and the unit certifies Range 37 or Sephardic, and then Sephardic is the proponent for the rest of the, you know, regular white or conventional special forces. Um, so I went to this this course, and it was great. Never, I didn't know anything about CQB, man. We were just shooting all the time, blowing doors up. I was like, man, this is exactly what I signed up for. And luckily, the, the, the team that was running that package liked me and brought me over and brought me on as an instructor for the next course, even though I had no real experience. Um, but not many people did, late 90s, who had combat experience um, yeah. some unit guys and some rangers from Mogadishu so they let me as a baby help teach and I was AI I, was, I wasn't really teaching anything I was just kind of there helping and then it evolved and I went to that ODA and I got lucky like again that's kind of a I keep getting lucky <laughs> my warrant was definitely a um, like an ASO guy like loved the source operations stuff um and so he hooked myself and my Echo up with this program with fifth group. And fifth group and 10th group were based on it, but it was a red cell against the NCCC, Nuclear Command and Control. 
Do you want to explain Red Cell to the audience? Or yeah, what? yeah. So Red Cell is basically like where, like in this case, we play the bad guys. And we were trying to infiltrate and interdict, you know, national assets. And this, that type of program is is all over the place, you know. And it's typically they'll they'll use special operations. I know SEALs have played this uh, in this same um, program. And basically, we had to play the role of terrorists, or and or like Russian infiltrators, and. The goal was to cause a couple of second hiccup in our nuclear defense. And that was all it would take for Russia to win, a few seconds. So it was a pretty amazing thing, a uh, pretty amazing program, eye-opening. It got me a TS clearance as an E6 baby SF guy. And that was huge. Back then, TS clearances were team sergeants and team leaders only. Nowadays, more guys on the team, seniors will have them, and et cetera, et cetera. But back then, E6 with a TS clearance, that was, that was a big deal. Yeah. And, uh, and it was like six months uh, that we were following, surveilling, chasing these assets. And it, it was worldwide. And I didn't even know this till we were done. For six months, I didn't see any of my teammates. I didn't know them. They were from uh, only only dead drops, only few text messages, but mostly communicating through dead drops. Old school tradecraft, old school tradecraft. So the first month was like a school uh, put on by ASO guys at Fifth Group to get us tuned up and ready for it. I had no idea about tradecraft, right? Uh, so it was eye opening. And the reason I think that you know they liked me and and, and they. You know, I didn't look like an SF guy. I was still a skinny little runner kid, you know, and I was so young that I, there was no one have ever, would have ever pegged me as an SF guy back then. And, um, you know, of course, it was a project team, so we, you know, relaxed grooming standards and all that. So we could, you know, I just went back to playing a part I always knew, you know, bought some cheap camouflage from uh, Walmart, went back to being a redneck, you know, and my cover was solidified. But I'm talking about chasing these assets all over the country. Um, there were days where I thought I would like got compromised by their security guys and I would just leave the rental car freaking call the rental company. Hey, the car broke down and I'd go get another one, two or three rental cars a day. And I mean, doing things to gain access to military bases that, you know, no ID card. We had to get out of jail free car when we got arrested or rolled up by MPs or something, uh, but it was an amazing program. Eye opening. I had no idea how the nuclear command and control worked and it was eye-opening and all the different assets and planes and trains and trucks and things uh, in this hierarchy that if our we did go to nuclear war with Russia, how it worked. And even still, it was very compartmentalized. So what I learned was only a portion of the big picture, but it was amazing. Like I said, didn't know my teammates. I finally met them on the morning of 9-11. We were playing Red Cell against national assets the day we were attacked. Shit. So even more funny, it was also the day we were supposed to interdict. So wow. my target was an Air Force general. All I had to do was take a picture of him inside of 400 meters, and it would have counted as a 
sniper shot. And I had followed them. I had actually lost them. And I was, oh my God, I was the only one on my team that had followed them out of like Missouri into Nebraska. What is it? Off at Air Force Base. Followed them, lost them there. And I just kind of camped out. I got a hotel room and, you know, pretty much just stayed up for three days watching the gate. And all of a sudden the convoy left. And I was like, sweet, got them. And another time I lost them and in the middle of nowhere flatlands like Nebraska or Oklahoma. And I was just like sitting on top of a, like an off ramp so I could see for miles. And I was just sitting there. I was like, man, damn it. I'm going to have to let them know I lost them. And I went, dude, like 50 miles away, I see this truck convoy in the middle of the night. And these aren't like black trucks. These are regular trucks, you know, any, but I could see them. And I was like, looked at my map because there was no Google Maps. Get my maps out and I start looking and I'm like, National Guard base. On the road they're on. I just went and waited. And so we got the orders that, hey, we're going to interdict um, on Saturday morning or whatever. No, Saturday, 9-11. And uh, I was like, okay, well, how am I going to get close to this, dude? I crawled. <laughs> my belly through the concrete little drainage ditch thingy like all night long trying to be all you know sniper crawl on your belly and sure enough man the sun comes up i'm watching i get a glimpse of the general as he moved from where he was staying to the, their little command post or whatever and all of a sudden man like everything started changing they got busy and i'm like what's going on and i get a my little flip phone vibrates, and it was like, uh, abort, 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 move to such and such, motel, IVO, whatever. I text back, I am not compromised. I'm good to go. Text message said, I say again, abort immediately. Do nothing else but come to this place. Do not make me like the the warrant that was in charge it was him and he was like do not make me tell you anything else again i'm, like, I'm thinking i'm fucked up you know i'm like what did i do like i didn't do anything wrong they don't know i'm here but as i'm watching them in the marines they had like a i don't know maybe two or three squad detachment of marines and all of a sudden they got magazines in their m16s the raven um air force security guys they're doing patrols now Shit. And I'm in the freaking grass, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, freaking wearing real tree camouflage and pair oh, of jeans. Fuck. From Walmart. Like, I'm not gillied out, nothing like that, dude. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not even taking it that serious. I gotta just get out of jail free card. No, dude, they got live ammo in their shit now because 9 11 had just happened. And you don't even realize. I have no clue. So, what took me like five hours of crawling took me only about an hour. I was all scuffed up from crawling on that little concrete and stuff and get out and go get in the rental car and haul ass back. And dude, I, there's this like you know, roadside little 1960s, 50s, one story motel, you know? And there's like 40 rental cars in the parking lot. I'm like, what, the, what in the hell? I pull up, there's the chief. He's like the program manager or whatever. He's like, come on, roger that. Get in there, dude. And this hotel room is packed full of people clearly some are operators there's females there's like what in the hell is all this 
dude, talking about compartmentalization, I had been working with a four-person cell for six months and never met them. Unbeknownst to me, this entire 30-some people had been on that target the whole time. Wow. So we want to talk about redundancy. It's amazing. What a, what a, a, a cool program. Learned a lot, like I said, and you know, they're on the TVs, the towers, man. And it's like, and they're like, yeah, man, we're under attack. And I'm just like, <clears throat> the Marines would have killed me. <laughs> yeah. Or at a minimum, beat my ass really well. Yeah. You know, who knows what jail I'd have been put in until they finally found my call colonel such and such. <laughs> so it was pretty spooky, man. Kind yeah. of a cool story of how 9-11 happened. And it was like, okay, what do we do now? Flights are canceled. We've got unit guys that need to get to Bragg. We've got 10th group guys that need to get to Colorado. 5th group guys to get back here. What are we doing? Some people get in their cars and start headed to Bragg. Um, the asset, right, clearly they all made contact and said, hey, we're the people who have been on you. Um, we're all still here and available to help if you need it. And the colonel basically said, hey, we are in route to um, you know, the Cheyenne facility in Colorado, could you escort us? And we we're like, yep. So we all, or most of us, went to um, Colorado, and then they C-17s came and got us, took us all back to wherever we needed to go. And um, so I'm back at Campbell with the fifth group guys, and they're like, "What do you want to do?" I'm like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, well, "We're going to Afghanistan. What do you want to do?" And I was like, "I want to go with y'all." You know. And again, lucky for me, how it all played out exactly, not 100% sure, but my company, Charlie Company, 2nd and 19th Special Forces, we were aligned with 5th Group, so Arabic speakers, all that stuff. Dude, they didn't just take me, they took my whole company. So we were the luckiest National Guards guys on the planet. We got to go to Afghanistan on the initial push. No shit. Yeah, yeah. And so we, my team was lucky to be one of the first of our companies to, to get to go and play. We wound up in Jalalabad. And um, so actually Jalalabad in 01 and, uh, and after Tor Bora, early 02, they loved us. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Now that my business is expanding, being fluent in multiple languages is more important than ever. Babbel's courses are convenient and work with my busy schedule. Here's a special. Limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash SRS. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash SRS. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SRS. Rules and restrictions may apply. Visit babbel.com for terms and details. There was no FOB at the airfield. Right, a lot of guys when they think Jalalabad, they think that big FOB. Yeah. Oh, dude, we had a safe house, us and the Ground Branch guys. Well, so this is this is O one. Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, it was real cool. Yeah, I've been and to we that were FOB children. Times. <laughs> yeah, we were children. Every time we had to resupply at the airfield, we had to go clear the airfield, make sure there was nothing on the strip, and they, you know, so it could land all that stuff. It was not a secured airfield. We lived two miles away in a 
house, you know, and um, Hazard Ali was the warlord. Zaman was the warlord that the agency picked to be the warlord of that area. But Zaman had been in Britain for 10 years. He was not a real Pashtu leader, but he spoke English. So the agency made a bad call and said, oh, he's going to be our guy. Well, Hazard Ali's like, hmm, yeah, but I live here and I'm in charge. And he's got 100 people for his army, and I've got 8,000. Who do you want to play with? So you know in Torbora, they got in a fight. And while they were fighting with each other, that's when Bin Laden escaped. No shit. Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was pretty bad, because you're talking about like guys on the same team now looking at each other, and these two, you know, some guys are over here with Zaman's guys, and some guys are with Ali's guys, and those guys are fighting each other, and we're all like, whoa. You know, but yeah, that's how, that's because they were fighting with each other. We had to stop fighting in Tora Bora and killing all the Ikeda people that were there, and Bin Laden got out. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. It sucked. And like, we knew. Everybody knew. Everybody knew he'd left. Like a helicopter left Tora Bora, dude. Who would be on that? Yeah. And then after the, all the damage assessments and the DNA and all that stuff taken out of there, nope, he wasn't there. And of course, they found him a few years later hanging out over in Pakistan. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. Cool. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll pick right back up with that deployment. Cool, cool. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, Please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through, and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. Like I said, I know I've said it how many times already, I got lucky. I got lucky. I did. It was just one cool thing after another with my career that just kept putting me in cool places. And... Into my first Afghanistan tour, it was kind of screwed up because the fifth group was in a hurry to get home because they thought, we all thought we were going to the Horn of Africa, right? The war on terror. Iraq wasn't on anyone's radar. And so third group comes in. There was a brief moment where the 82nd Airborne, 18th Airborne Corps was in charge. And, of course, they were like, everybody has to get in uniform. And we were like, I guess you guys are going to have to come to Jalalabad and make us. Oh, by the way, you can't land here unless we go clear the airfield. So, fuck off with that. You know, so we're going to continue to wear our cutoff DCUs and wear our beards and be weird SF dudes running around dressed like Afghanis and doing whatever we want. And uh, so then third group comes in and they took over, start ripping teams out. And um, um, for whatever reason, they wouldn't let us go home. So the FOB, the main FOB, was still up in K2, uh, Karshi Kananabad in Uzbekistan. So they hadn't really moved all operations to Kandahar and, and, and Bagram at that time. Uh, and so wound up back up there, and my company commander, I'm like, well, screw it. Send me back. I'll, I'll go help another team. Send me back to down with my buds that are in Asadabad. You know, like, I, I don't want to sit up here and do nothing. Yeah. And I was getting ready to go do that, and luckily, <laughs> my company commander, he's like, hey, I got an assignment for you. You're going to Tashkent, 
you're going to be the assistant assistant LNO for Siege of Sodaf. I'm like, I don't know what any of that means, but sounds cool. Tashkent. I've heard it's an amazing city. Where is that? Uh, so it's the capital of Uzbekistan. Okay. Um, we may or may not have named it Tashkitty. <laughs> I'm young. I'm single. So I was supposed to, <laughs> I was supposed to go help the LNO because now I'm the assistant LNO. Well, I get there. He is a 10th group guy, born and raised in Ukraine, came to the States when he was like 14, so speaks fluent Russian. 10th group guy, retires, goes to work for like the organized crime task force uh, in Miami-Dade, working Russian crime mm -hmm. syndicates. This dude isn't much less of a criminal than probably most of the people, but they had stop lost him. They brought him back in for his language skills and his cultural skills and all that. This dude was friends with everyone. I mean, the president's daughter. Uh, she had a cool nightclub, so we went there um, pretty much every night. And, you know, we, my duty station was, in theory, supposed to be the embassy. Dude, I went to the embassy one time, got my badge, and left. And then Vic, uh, I should probably, I'll just leave his name out, right? <laughs> it's uh, the LNO. It's time for him to go home on leave. And he's like, all right, so just be cool. If you get in any trouble, you get arrested, call these numbers, freaking, I'll be back in 30 days. I'm like, Roger. But it was like $250 a day per diem, and I spent every dime of it. Every dime of it. And you're talking about a beer costs 20 cents. Yeah. We, uh, I mean, I've been in Afghanistan at this point for seven months. The only women I had seen were, you know, wearing burqas, except for Hazar Ali's grandma. And let me tell you, an 85-year-old Afghani woman is not a lot to look at. Uh, so I find myself, and this is the silk trade route, right? So every flavor of extremely attractive woman is in this town. Asian descent, blue-eyed, you know, blonde-haired Russian girls. And then the freaks, the black-haired, blue-eyed, whatever they were. Um, interesting, interesting people. Um, I was just young, dumb. And like I said, somehow in a place where you could pretty much live for $1,000 a month, I was blowing $250 a day. Um, I didn't make anything off that trip. But uh, <laughs> I couldn't go to breakfast without getting picked up. You know, they were like, you American? Duh. <laughs> you know? And uh, I mean, baseball cap, you know? And uh, I always say it's probably the closest thing I'll ever know is being David Lee Roth. <laughs> and it ruined me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can never go back to that unless you go back there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, that was kind of cool. How long were you there for? Uh, 42 days. How'd they get you out of there? Well, it was like, okay, we're going home. So hopped a flight back down to K2. And basically my company commander looked at all of us and said, okay, we've got no real exit plan, but fifth group says we can go, or third group says we can go home. And he's like, last one home's a rotten egg. And literally dudes got up and like started running. And so me and my buddy, Charlie, uh, Charlie Withers, and we used to call a nickname Charlie. We would call him uh, Drunken Charlie Withers. 
you know you got to drink a lot to earn that name in this crowd. Yeah. Right? But Charlie was a Charlie was a stud, man. Is a stud. Uh, he was my senior, Charlie, and um, learned a lot from him. And he was just a an even kill dude, you know, with a good perspective. And numerous times he'd be like, "Come here," you know. Yeah, he was a West Virginia boy, and then the guys. Well, he was a yeah originally from West Virginia, but had been a third group guy. Got out, went to uh, National Guard. Always with a dip in. Sometimes with a cigarette and a dip, he'd chew my ass. He'd be like, hey, "Come here." But like in that wise way, mm -hmm. you know, and even though he wouldn't, he wouldn't like he was very old, early thirties. But I was a baby. He looks, they all seemed old to me. And um, he'd be like, hey, come here. You know, I was lucky to have him and a couple other dudes that you know were like, "Hey, bro, come here." You know, don't do that again. You know? uh, nothing crazy or anything. Just you know, it's just young and wild. And, and then the whole bunch was too. You know, it's like, hey, you know. You got this left and right limits. Stay away from them. Just keep it in the middle. You're going to have fun. We're going to have a good time. None of us will get in trouble. So I was lucky to have those guys, man. And, you know, so, yeah, me and Charlie start figuring our way how to get home. We're jumping plane to plane, and we fly to Germany, and we get on another plane, and we wound up landing in at Dover Air Force Base. Like, somehow or another, hitched a ride on a, on a, um, the C5 Galaxy with the seats that face backwards, uh, the thing before the C17s. Yeah. And uh, got home, and <laughs> I'll never forget, from there we hopped on um, civilian planes to our home of record. Not back to the unit. I mean, we just, at this point, man, we're just doing whatever we want. And, you know, the orders back then were for the GWAT, but our orders were the original program. Right with the code word on it, you know the the cover word for yeah. it, which a lot of people don't know. The initial code word for the hunt for Bin Laden, um, it's declassified now, is or was elk hunt. I right. didn't know that elk hunt. I don't know many people that do it. Just happened to be it was like the initial code word early on for the hunt for him. It was. That was his code word. No shit, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, it was kind of kind of cool or whatever. And our orders, we could do. You had a beard, and those orders, you could do whatever you want. You get on any airplane, any helicopter. Uh, hell, at one point in my trip to Afghanistan, myself and my Echo flew to Bagram for him to get crypto and me to get money. I'm looking at the flights out of Bagram back to Jalalabad, and it's only helos, bad weather. We can't get there. We're like, okay, but what if? Fix wing. What if we fly to Interlick, Turkey, and then from Turkey back to K2, and then we get on the C-130 that flies to Jalalabad each week to resupply us? Holy shit. We don't tell nobody. We went to Turkey and partied for four days, AWOL as fuck. <laughs> partied. So we get, <laughs> yeah, like I said, you had those orders in a beard. You could do whatever you want. So we got our full battle rattle, right? And back then, you know, wearing those big, like, LBVs and stuff, you know, and a bunch of mags and a bunch of frags and PDMs. Um, did you ever mess with those things, the old pursuit deterrent munition? No. It was this little uh, triangular freaking thing. You pulled it, and, like, six or eight wires popped out of it. And if you tripped those wires, the way it was designed, it had a, an explosive charge in the middle in a, cylind in a sphere and a propellant. So no matter which way it landed on the ground, when it ignited, that propellant would kick it up in the air, boom, and go off like a bouncing Betty. And it wasn't catastrophic. Less 
um, comp B than a frag grenade. So not. Okay. But still. Yeah. To the Air Force guys in Interlick that we were just dumping our stuff on, you know, and saying, hey, we're going to lock this in your stuff. We'll be back in a couple of days. They're like, what? Wait, what? Who are y'all? What is this stuff? What is this thing? I'm like, well, be careful with that. They're stable as hell. And they're like, well, just lock it up, guys. We'll be back. And they're like, yes, sirs. You know, we're just perping a fraud. Like we're, you know, important people. And but they don't know. And uh, so sure enough, they're like, you know, the, the base was locked down. Couldn't leave the base. We went to the gate, walked right through the, the main checkpoint. This is a pretty big secure gate with MPs everywhere. And they're like, hey, guys, you can't leave post. I'm like, yes, we can. And they're like, okay. We went to the Mediterranean and partied for four days. Holy and I mean, shit. partied. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's probably the only time in my life I was like, had a decent level of alcohol poisoning. It was pretty bad. Um, so... We get back to Interlude to the base, and sure enough, bump into a guy from our company, uh, from the B team, the command team. And he's like, the fuck are y'all doing here? And we're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> he's, he's a master sergeant. We're two E6s. And he's like, no, seriously, guys, don't tell anybody you saw me either. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, don't tell anybody. We're like, Roger. And uh, so then I didn't tell anybody about us doing that for probably 10 years. We kept it that kind of secret. Like, because you know what I mean? Like, it went like, anyway, we could have gotten in some trouble. Probably nothing big. We didn't, we weren't really AWOL, right? No one told us we couldn't do it. But <laughs> it was kind of like we kind of screwed our team. We're in the med partying, having a great time, and they're in Jalalabad, you know. And it was only four total days. I think we only partied for two nights, uh, maybe three nights, whatever it was. And um, we get back, and like I said, we ran into that guy, and his name was Mike. And Mike was like, "Don't tell anybody." And so we get back, and we did. We finished our route, flew in on the one thirty, and never told the team. So we kind of were, you know what I mean? Like we kind of were screwing the team. <laughs> You know? But at the same time, everyone on that team would have been like, good for y'all, man. Now yeah. tell us how you did it. <laughs> you know, if we had told anybody, there would have been all kinds of dudes going AWOL into Interlink, you know. But yeah, you know, we get home and um, I'll never forget that uh, Charlie had um, pen flares in his backpack and the Air Force didn't care. But when we got to the airport in... Um, was a uh, BWI Baltimore. Uh, he gets rolled up for those pin flares, <laughs> you know, a whole strip of them. And uh, I'm like waving at him as I go get on the plane to North Carolina. Good luck, bro. Remember what he said? Last one home's rotten egg. <laughs> yeah. I get home at like, finally like at midnight. And the girl I was dating at the time, like she wasn't home. She was had gone and was staying with her mom or whatever. I'm like, it's midnight. What am I going to do? You know? So I like slept in my truck. I was like, no one knows I'm home. No cool guy welcome. I don't know where the rest of my team or company is. And I'm at my home of record in North Carolina. I was just like, whatever, man. But that's that's National Guard shit. Yeah. Right? Like, National Guard, SF, it's just so different. And Lord knows it was, it was quite the trip. Of course, you know, uh, Iraq is now up on the pipe. And everyone's, I mean... Everyone's a little confused about it. They're like, wait a second. I thought we were going to Somalia. 
what about Yemen, where the terrorists are at? Mm -hmm. Like, no, Iraq, weapons of mass destruction. And we all knew better, man. Did you know better back then? For sure. And, and I think, I think it really boiled down to the fact that no one was infilling with mop gear. Like, conventional forces, even Ranger Regiment, all infilled with their mop gear. They're, uh, for folks who don't know mop gear, they're chem bio suits. Yeah. And, gas masks and all that stuff. But there, it, it was pretty darn clear. There was no weapons of mass destruction. I mean, they had like some old canisters of mustard gas. Well, you know how you defeat mustard gas? When it goes off, move. Because <laughs> it just settles. Uh, which way is the wind blowing? Go the opposite direction. That's mustard gas, right? In yeah. the desert, it's not effective. Uh, now, you know, obviously it would suck in buildings or something like that, but it just didn't exist. So... I mean, like, we went to war with Iraq. Man, I had, I mean, I was young. I was 19, just just maybe 20, just getting into the team. And uh, I had no idea I was all about it. Oh, I was still all about it, even though, because they were bad people and Saddam was a horrible person. And I didn't understand geopolitics at all at the time and how toppling a dictator, right? Dictators are predictable. They care about their power. So you... They're predictable. They're not horrible enemies. I mean, if they go, I guess, slaughtering their own people and stuff, yeah, step in and, hey, stop doing that, you know, which we did, right? Of course, after the first Gulf War, we left the Kurds, you know, to him brutalizing them, which was, I mean, that's just kind of our MO, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of sucks. But, um, and they still don't trust us. Yeah, I worked and lived with the Kurds for almost 15 years. Love and trust me, do not trust our government. And they would say, hey, man, there's a reason why we're not against Iranians. They're our Persian brothers, and when y'all leave, they'll be our only friends here. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, Iraq and all that. And then my um, second trip to Afghanistan, one of our Afghanis, oh, let me back up. One of the cool things we did in Afghanistan was start, stood up the MRF, Mobile Reaction Force. It was all CIA sanctioned. All the lethal aid came from them. Um, and we stood them up, company sized, but it was, I think it was just three platoons. And um, the MRF evolved into the commandos. So that's kind of cool. You know, if I had to look back and you know, what are notable things in your past career? Like the commandos, every soft, every SF, MARSOC guy worked with the commandos. You guys the stood this up. We stood up the MRF. That is pretty fucking amazing. Kind of cool. Yeah. Um, like I said, it was. I'm sure my team sergeant and warrant and the agency guys, you know, all conspired to to create this thing, with no idea that it would evolve into the commandos. Well, why don't why don't you elaborate on exactly what those commandos did? Because nobody, yeah. there's not very many people listening that'll put this together. So the the commandos were the Afghani special forces, but. Not, not just like their National Police Special Forces, the commandos were the guys were a lot like our Ranger Regiment, you know, the shock troopers, um, you know, going out, going after targets, uh, going after the, the high-value targets. And for folks who don't know, when we say target in that context, individuals, people, of course, there are target compounds, and then there are individuals that are target. So HVIs, I think we started calling them, what, high-value individuals instead of high-value targets. So, you know, they would go after individuals. And those are the same dudes that, like, I, after my second trip to Afghanistan, 
I didn't go back. I stayed in Iraq and, you know, um, Yemen, Africa, et cetera. So, pardon me, for all the other, like, third group guys, a lot of seventh group guys who were the Afghanistan teams, you know, they lived and worked with those commandos. So when we pulled out of Afghanistan, you know, those commandos were were surrounded in their bases and systematically eradicated by yep. the Taliban. They were These are the people that guys. we abandoned yeah. that were shot in the back of the head like dogs yeah. when we left. Stood up. Stood, lined Spent 20 up years working for us, yeah. with us, alongside us. Yeah, and we just left them. And, you know, there, there were guys that went back. There were guys that left, went AWOL, go back to Afghanistan to help. And, you know, I, I was with a seventh group buddy of mine when one of his old guys called him, begging for help, begging. And you guys are coming, right? And, I mean, he held it together until he got off the phone and he just started crying. You know? These were dudes that he had worked with on, like, five deployments. And brothers. You know? It's bullshit. No matter what your stance on the war was or whether or not, right? Like, on our level, it's brotherhood. You know? And... and I try to separate that type of connection and feeling and that kind of thing with the overall big picture and an understanding. And, you know, there's understanding and there's acceptance. It's two very different things. Like, I understand why the United States government does so many of the things it does. But I also have a good understanding that it ain't right and we can do better. We need to do better, you know? We act like we're this beacon of freedom and then we do what we did to the Afghanis. Yeah. You know, like what we did to the Kurds, like what we did to the Montagnards, like what we did to the South Vietnamese, et cetera, et cetera. Our last successful war, if you want to call it a success, was in Korea, bro. You know, I guess Do maybe you think we're the bad one. guys? Just honest question. And I, I, I think I've been thinking a lot, a lot of about this lately. I think there are a lot of bad people in our government. I mean, I if think, you look at this from a, you know, whatever, a 60,000 foot view. I know. And you look at the world and you look at all the shit that the U.S. has intervened in. And now, you know, the, with, the, with the way the Internet yeah. and, the, and, the, and the, the access to information we have, it's starting to paint another picture. And I think, you know, for the longest time, we stuck our nose in places that we needed to. Right. There is some responsibility that goes along with being a world superpower. Right. One of the greatest examples of that would be Alexander. He didn't enslave. He subjugated and supported and won the hearts and minds. Right? Yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> right? I mean, and, and let's go to the opposite side. Let, Iraq. Let's say we were pumping the oil out of Iraq right now as fast as we could pump it out. We're paying a dollar a gallon at the pumps. At least then we could say, hey, we're an imperial power on a conquest, and we won the stuff. It's ours. We're taking it. Yeah. I could respect that. It's not what we did. We shut their oil production down so prices would go up, and all the oil folks, BP, British Petroleum, Exxon, name them, they all got rich, really rich, because we turned their oil off. And a lot of folks don't realize this, right? Like, Iraq? And Iran and China and Russia 
in that time frame, we're already talking about replacing the dollar as the, the standard for trading oil and creating a, a petrodollar, making the dollar obsolete in that world. And so there are a lot of folks that say that's why we went there. Of course, I think General Wesley Clark did an interview in like 2007, maybe eight, whatever. If you YouTube search General Wesley Clark Seven Nation War, I think, will get you the YouTube. Right after 9-11, about 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me in. He said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said, well, don't show it to me. And I saw him a year or so ago, and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say his name was? <laughs> I'm not going to give you his name. So go through the countries again? Well, starting with Iraq, then Syria and Lebanon, then Libya, then Somalia and Sudan, and then back to Iran. So when you look at Iran, you say, is it a replay? It's not exactly a replay, but here's the truth, that Iran from the beginning has seen that the presence of the United States in Iraq was a threat, a blessing, because we took out Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists. They couldn't handle them. We could, took care of it for them, but also a threat because they knew that they were next on the hit list. And so of course they got engaged. They lost a million people during the war with Iraq. And they've got a long and unprotectable, unsecurable border. So it was in their vital interest to be deeply involved inside Iraq. Um, they tolerated our attacks on the Ba'athists. They were happy we captured Saddam Hussein but they're building up their own network of influence and to cement it they occasionally give some military assistance and training and advice either directly or indirectly to both the insurgents and to the militias and in that sense it's not exactly parallel because there has been i believe continuous iranian engagement 
some of it legitimate, some of it illegitimate. I mean, you can hardly fault Iran because they're offering to do eye operations for Iraqis who need medical attention. That's not an offense that you can go to war over, perhaps. But it is an effort to gain influence. And the administration has stubbornly refused to talk with Iran about their perception, in part because they don't want to pay the price with their domestic, our U.S. domestic political base, the right, right wing base, but also because they don't want to legitimate a government that they've been trying to overthrow. If you were Iran, you'd probably believe that you were mostly already at war with the United States anyway, since we've asserted that their government needs regime change. So, uh, and we've asked Congress to appropriate $75 million to do it, and we are supporting terrorist groups, apparently, who are infiltrating and blowing up things inside Iraq, Iran. And if we're not doing it, let's put it this way, we're probably cognizant of it and encouraging it. So it's not surprising that we're moving to a point of confrontation and crisis with Iran. My point on this is not that the Iranians are good guys, they're not, but that you shouldn't use force except as a last, last, last resort. There is a military option, but it's a bad one. I wanted to get your response to Seymour Hersh's piece in The New Yorker to two key points um, this week. Reporting the Pentagon's established a special planning group within the office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to plan a bombing attack on Iran. Um, that this is coming as the Bush administration and Saudi Arabia are pumping money for covert operations into many areas of the Middle East, including Lebanon, Syria, and Iran, in an effort to strengthen Saudi-supported Sunni Islam groups and weaken Iranian-backed Shias. Some of the covert money has been given to jihadist groups in Lebanon with ties to Al-Qaeda. Fighting the Shias by funding with Prince Bandar um, and then with U.S. money not approved by Congress, funding the Sunnis connected to Al-Qaeda. Well, I don't have any direct information to confirm it or deny it. it, it it's certainly plausible. The Saudis have taken a more active role. You know, the, the Saudis... Um, you were just have, in Saudi Arabia. Hmm? You just came back from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well, Arabia. the Saudis have basically recognized that they have an enormous stake in the outcome in Iraq, and they don't particularly trust the judgment of the United States in this area. We haven't exactly proved our competence in Iraq. So um, they're trying to take matters into their own hands. The real danger is, and one of the reasons this is so complicated, is because let's say we did follow the, the, the desires of some people who say, just pull out and pull out now. Well, yeah, we, we could mechanically do that. It would be ugly, and it might take three or four months, but you could line up the battalions on the road one by one, and you could put the gunners and the Humvees and cock, load and cock their weapons and shoot their way out of Iraq. You'd have a few roadside bombs, but if you line everybody up, there won't be any roadside bombs, maybe some sniping. You can fly helicopters over, do your air cover. You probably get safely out of there. But when you leave, the Saudis have got to find someone to fight the Shias. Who are they going to find? Al-Qaeda. Because the groups of Sunnis who would be extremists and willing to fight would probably be the groups connected to Al-Qaeda. 
So one of the weird inconsistencies in this is that were we to get out early, we'd be intensifying the threat against us of a super powerful Sunni extremist group, which was now legitimated by overt Saudi funding in an effort to hang on to a, a toehold inside Iraq and block Iranian expansionism. Well, Wesley Clark talks about how he's walking through the Pentagon, bumps into a general friend of his, I think he was a colonel at the time, and we're like, hey, we're going to Iraq. And he's like, what? What do you mean we're going to Iraq? Yep, powers that be said we're going to Iraq, and there's a whole list of countries that we're going to topple in the next couple of years. Iraq, Libya, they're on the list. And that interview, we didn't go to Iraq. There's no doubt in my mind, we did not go to Iraq for good reasons. Yeah. We went to Iraq, I think partly for the Bush vendetta. But like I said, hopefully viewers don't crucify me for saying this. But if you took that 60,000 foot view and you removed the photographs and the names from the behaviors of George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin, who's, who's the war criminal? I mean, maybe both of them, but George Bush fits that fucking profile, man. And I mean, oh, a lot of civilians killed in Iraq. Mm -hmm. A lot of U.S. military members, a lot of Iraqi military members, a lot of terrorists. We killed the shit out of a bunch of bad dudes, which is probably a righteous thing. But, I mean, we fucked up Iraq for the next 100 years. Now, and some people say, but we got rid of a dictator. I'm like, you know what? And, again, these are all my perceptions based off of experiences. And one of the experiences I had is one day I was in Dahuk, Iraq, which, you know, is a nice city and there's a lot of money there. Spent a lot of time there. Yeah. And we're at um, that Lebanese hotel or the, it was a Lebanese owned hotel and Lebanese restaurant and bar. We're just sitting there and these two huge mofos walk in. I'm talking two of the biggest dudes I'd ever seen. I was like, the, you know, white dudes. They sit down at the bar next to us. Like, What's up, mate? Or whatever they said. And I'm like, I didn't pick up the accent. I'm like, hey, how's it going? We start chatting. Where are you guys from? Oh, we're South African. Oh, okay, it's like US, US, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, come to find out, bro, these dudes, so South Africa, if you go do contract work, man, you're persona non grata back in that country. You lose your citizenship to go do what they consider to be mercenary work. And these guys were both um, South African SAS types, but they were rugby players. That's why they were so huge. I mean, both these dudes were six foot four. 280 pounds, <laughs> just monsters. They're your rugby guys. But um, we start talking, and they're like, yeah, you guys totally f this place up. And they're like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, we've lived here since 97 or whatever. They've been there for like five years. And they're like, this place was awesome. Baghdad was the coolest place in the Middle East. I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. Everybody thought Dubai was cool. Nowhere near it. Iraq or Baghdad. All the hookers and blow you ever wanted. Freaking. It was awesome. Nightlife is better than Vegas. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, no one ever told us how Iraqis live daily. They weren't a Muslim extremist, right? They were very secular, right? The government was not an Islamic state. 
and the people practiced numerous different religions. Christians were free. Zidis were free, right? Yeah, there was some scuffle between Sunni and, and, and Shia because of you know Saddam being you know his background. And I remember having that conversation, and that was like the first time I was like, huh, huh. So you mean to tell me Iraq was much different than what the news media told us? Well, it wasn't like anyone from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC ever went and visited Baghdad to get the scoop. But yeah, these dudes were mad at us for ruining their Iraq. Damn. It's spooky, man. But as far as us being the bad guy, in many cases and from many people's perspectives. I mean, there were there were... There were Christians being persecuted, from what I certainly. understand. Certainly, you know, and I mean, even in the hook, I went to one of the sites, and I've had, uh, I had a in-depth discussion with this guy Chris Van Zandt uh, yeah. about it, and um, but, I mean, looking at everything that encompassed it, I mean, also there's the KBR thing with Cheney. Yeah, man, people got mega rich off that war. Yeah, they did. And that's okay. And the reason that's okay is that's been the number one reason for going for war since the beginning of time. There has never been, not ever, not a single day in human history that we haven't been at war with each other. There's never been a time where there was peace on earth. Yeah. Ever. There's always been someone fighting someone. Yeah. And it's always been over the expansion, you know, the spoils of war. And I'm okay with that. Like I said, if we were pumping Iraq dry right now, I'd be like, meh, all right, well, at least it makes sense that we're now an imperial power that, you know, takes things. At least it would have paid for the war. That's not what happened. You know, like I said, so many people got mega rich. And, it, and I was a contractor, you know. I, I made good money. I was part of the problem, too. Or at least I was part of the machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I don't know that we are the beacon of freedom and hope that we once were. And, I mean, let's face it, the people who are running this country are just a bunch of spineless puppets. Yeah. You know? I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. There aren't but about three dudes on Capitol Hill that I think, uh, you know, are, are, are doing things for the right reasons. Yeah. And, and it, I'm concerned for them because they're new. And that place, I mean, they're they're outnumbered, right? Like Eli, I, Eli must feel completely alone up there, <laughs> you he know, because he's like the only good dude, you know. I mean, don't get me wrong, um, Dan Bishop from North Carolina votes very conservative, and I, and I like him a lot. But he compromised and voted for McCarthy for speaker. McCarthy is a Californian, bro, right? And a career politician. He's not a conservative. He is an opportunist. Mm -hmm. and, and until Americans get off their lazy asses and maybe go vote, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know that it's going to change, man. It's only going to get worse. I don't think it's going to change. I, I mean, mean, 250 years, man. That is the life expectancy, historically speaking, of you know, democratic republics and constitutional republics. I mean, I'm, I'm going to just, we're going off on a tangent here. So we're, <laughs> let me, let me remember that we are, 
we're in Iraq right now, like yeah, career, right? But when we go off on, I mean, when we talk about, when you talk about, you know, trying to wake this population up, it's, I mean, I'm in media and I, so being in media, I have to research kind of, you know, what, what's working, what trends are. I used to look at that shit. Now I don't care. I, I do what I'm interested in. I'm interested yeah. in your story. I'm interested. There's all kinds of things that I'm interested in. I love uncovering corruption, dig it into finding truth and all this kind of shit. And I'm, I'm always, you know, I look at a show like this, you know what I mean? Where we dig into, we're talking about mental health. We're, a lot of people, what I'm getting at is a lot of people can't even fucking comprehend the subjects that we're talking about here. They did, they, their mind doesn't, it doesn't compute. Mind in their own business. I don't they know if no, it's I don't know if yeah. it's IQ level or what it is. But if you look at like some of the most viewed content on YouTube, I can't even imagine. When you look at shit that gets a hundred million views, fifty million views, twenty million views, I don't even want to know. <laughs> Ten million views. I don't even want to know. It's watch my. Watch my wife come from another country, uh, review American cereal. 20 million views. You watch, you watch, let's, let's set up a dating game where we have a competition where we bring on a bunch of 16 year olds to, to date this popular YouTuber, 16 year old. And, and let's, let's make it, let's make it a reality. This is the shit, Kardashians. All this shit, it's this mindless, I mean, it's, that's what get that's what gets people's attention. Bubble gum for the brain. You know, then you got even the last election, what was it, a hundred and, was it 150 million votes? Less than half. Fraction. Less than the half population. the population votes. And right. that was the biggest election of all time, right? Biggest turnout ever. You know, I, th I, th I don't think it's changing. And, and you look at the content that, consumes people and you start to realize you you start to realize how fucking easy it is to manipulate an entire population of 366 million people it's not much harder than herding fucking sheep or goats or, or was cattle. It in the, the 1930s there's a law passed that the united states government shall not participate in any type of misinformation propaganda campaigns directed at its citizens. And in 2012, the Obama administration and the freaking Congress that sat then repealed it. It is legal for the agency, the sister agency, the FBI, and the rest of them to put out intentionally misinformation propaganda to American citizens now and has been for 10 years. When was the last time you heard any congressperson? They didn't fuss about it back then. They're not fussing about it now. Just like the Patriot Act. Yeah. Patriot Act, greatest pull of our freedoms in history. Signed by Bush too. A lot of other people don't know this. There's only two presidents in US histories to suspend the writ of habeas corpus the right to due process. George W. So he was the one that created the situation 
that allowed for locking up January 6th people with no process. George Bush did that. The other one, even bigger lie, Abraham Lincoln. Really? Oh, honest Abe. Probably the most closest thing we ever had to a Caesar in our entire history. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Now, at least with George W., it was directed at terrorists. Abraham Lincoln was locking up political opponents, representatives, senators, governors. If you would disagree with Lincoln, he would send generals to your house or, or military to your house, put you in prison where you sat for the rest of the war if they let you out at the end of the war. Lincoln, bro, the, one of the Republicans' greatest leaders of all time. It's a fucking lie. And, you know, they're like, oh, he freed the slaves. Man, there's like 20 different letters that he wrote himself saying that he wouldn't if he didn't think it was the only way to win the war. He basically said, he was like, if I didn't have to free the slaves, I wouldn't. He's like, but this is how we win this war. I didn't, I didn't know that the latter. Yeah. Uh, the, one of the best letters. How that, do you know that? Are you history buff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much anything I watch, uh, like YouTube, it's always history stuff. Like I spent the last couple months watching thousand years of Mongol, <laughs> Mongol stuff. Uh, yeah. All the wars in Europe, um, you know, BC wars and stuff. That's what I've been interested in lately. But, um, you know, I never did. I never, I didn't care about politics. Never cared one bit. Hell, there was plenty of elections I didn't vote in because I was deployed or whatever, you know. Um, and being a military type guy, I'm like, hey, man, I work for the boss. And the boss is who the people elect. If that's Obama or Biden or whatever, that's the rules, man. That's mm -hmm. what I signed up for. So I kind of just stayed out of politics until I jumped in face first. And it was just so eye-opening, dude. A lot of this stuff I learned during that time period. And um, the, the, the really bad thing is, is how available the truth is. It's not like you're going to see it on Fox News. That's what I'm yeah. saying, though, Tony. That's the, the, There's a lot of truth out there. It's just nobody fucking takes the time to look. They're too busy watching yeah. foreigners review American cereal. And they're too busy <sighs> watching reality shows of 16-year-olds yeah. meet up for a dating game. And, yeah. and, and that's just that's just how it is. And they were, you, God, you got to give it to the powers that be. And, and if you want to say liberals, cool. But if you think it's just liberals behind this whole pandemic and the push to take over, to, to subdue an entire, the entire world's population, right? It's not just liberals. It just happened to be. Because I think people forgot the vaccine was actually approved while Trump was still in office. Yep. And it's like people forgot that. I mean, he's supposed to be the guy that's going to save us all. I don't believe any one man is going to save this country. And it's yeah. sad that people are raised as single human being to almost godlike status. That's scary to me. All right. That's how Caesar became Caesar. I'm glad you're saying this. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I watched Donald Trump interfere in elections, in the midterm elections. 
who used his influence to interfere in elections. And in some cases, it didn't go very well, right? He did not have this big crazy, was it the red wave? Yeah. Because um, he uh, endorsed Dr. Oz. Hell, he endorsed Dr. Greg Murphy, the guy I was running against. Tiny. Just because Greg Murphy paid him for the endorsement. Everybody acts like no Donald shit, Trump. I didn't know oh, that. yeah. Donald Trump's endorsements are not free. Oh, no. Not even close to free. How much does it cost to get a paid endorsement from Donald Trump? Any idea? I heard 1.6, but do not quote me on that. I don't know. <laughs> Were you just a couple hundred thousand shy? I was of that? a little shy of that. <laughs> and, you know, it's How just How do you know that? I'm just. Uh, so I, you know, I had friends that that worked for him. Okay. You know, uh, which was sad because, like, you know, he uh, Joe Kent, you know, Green Beret was running out in Washington State. Joe and him, he worked for him, and and Trump backed him big time. Um, but I, I, I couldn't really get looked at. Uh, I didn't have that kind of money, um, and I think Trump backed him on goodwill. I don't, I don't think Joe had to pay Trump anything, um, but. It was funny if you watch when Trump Trump never really announced that he endorsed Greg Murphy. Greg Murphy had announced that Trump endorsed him, and when he came to an event, it was like this cold handshake because Greg Murphy missed the vote for impeachment. So you know, and, and Trump's a you know he's a loyalty type of guy, from what I understand. Um, but Murphy spoke out against him and some of the January 6th stuff and then didn't show up for the vote for impeachment and all that kind of stuff. So typically speaking, you would be like, I, I was almost confident that Trump was going to endorse me um, or at least stay out of it, which would have been my preferred um, option. But like I said, if you watch the way they interact, it was cold. It was a ball and paid for endorsement. And it made a difference, it made a huge difference. Damn. Because if Trump says something, people just believe it. They love that guy. And I'm not I'm not saying, I mean, clearly, if you give me a choice, I gotta vote between him and Biden, duh, I'm voting for Trump. I think Trump is mostly you know, cares about correcting things, mostly, or at least to his the way he sees it. But I don't know, man. Reelect no one. That's what we should be doing, reelecting no one. Yeah. I don't care, right? Like if George Washington was reincarnated, shouldn't reelect re him either. Yeah. You know, these these folks are just staying in power and they're coming back and their power just gets more and more. And, and you know, we, we can talk about like everything I learned about my, in my run. We'll get into that. Yeah. We'll get into that. It's, let's get back to, let's get back to Iraq. And then, and then we'll get into For that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so I break my back in Afghanistan, um, and I thought my career was over because I had just been going orders to orders, project to project, in with the guard. I was Hold doing, on, you broke okay. your back in Afghanistan. Yeah, how'd you break your back in Afghanistan? <sighs> Afghani tripped, took a couple of catch catch up steps. And bumped into and knocked me off a cliff. We we're kind of we we're on a it was a recce mission, and um, kind of little switchback. And he it was middle of the night. Um, he didn't have his nods, 
because they're heavy. Hmm. I don't know that wearing knives would have helped him, but he tripped and he bumped me. So, you know, I was carrying 80, 100 pounds of gear and went off the cliff and the rucksack just smashed me. Freaking, it was basically a compression fracture of L5. And so it split my spine, part of the bone went in and cut my spinal cord a little bit. Not all the way. Uh, when people say, they, you know, you sever your spinal cord and you can't feel your legs, that was not what happened to me. <laughs> the shit hurt. Not a little bit. <laughs> uh, like I said, when I was racing motocross, I broke my femur, two ribs, my arm, and my collarbone in one crash. And that didn't come close to the pain of breaking that, that fraction of that vertebrae. How far, how far was that fall, do you think? 12, 15 feet. Not far. But enough to get crushed. Um, you know, to put it in perspective, the average ceiling is either eight or nine feet in America. All right? So, fell that far. Uh, in a brace and a wheelchair. ETS date was coming up. I didn't want to file for any disabilities because my plan was to get healthy and go back. I had a flight packet in. I wanted to fly. So I was supposed, I actually already had, uh, I was waiting on orders. I had been approved. I was going to warrant course and was going to fly helicopters. I thought my career was over, being young and dumb, scared to ruin opportunities. We've all been there, right? You don't want to claim that injury or whatever. I, uh, in a brace, in a wheelchair. They said, if you walk with crutches one day, you'll be lucky. Like your, leg, your right leg's always gonna be fucked. Okay. I think it was like eight months later, I was running a sub six mile again. Nice. Now it hurts, and it still hurts. It was 05, what are we at, almost 20 years later. I have to be careful. And there's been numerous times, probably five times over that since then, that like, oh God. <laughs> And it hurts, bad hurts. Uh, last time it happened, I was out back, laying in the prone, zeroing a rifle, and I went to get up. I was like, oh my God. Crawled to my truck, because my phone was in the truck. <laughs> Got myself up in the seat, but had to lay the seat back because sitting up hurt so bad. Well, I can't see to drive, so I put the truck in reverse and used the reverse camera to drive home. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Called my buddy to come get me because I couldn't get out of the truck. He got me out of the truck and into the door. And, I mean, I pulled the truck up to the door of my house. Like, I opened the door of the truck, and pretty much there was the floor mat, you know, to wipe your feet on. He got there. 30 minutes later, I was still sitting in the truck. He gets me up, gets me out of the truck. We got in the door. He shut the door, and I and I threw up from the pain. I mean, it hurts, man. Um but I wasn't hearing it, you know? I mean, since then I've gone on to do some pretty pretty cool physical stuff, but it reminds me. It'll bite me every now and then, just as a reminder, like, mm, careful, buddy. Yeah. Mm, be careful, you know, or we'll put you down. Gotcha. All right, I have to pay attention to it. But yeah, thought my career was over. So I went ahead and let my ETS happen and got out. ETS, uh, termination of service, right? Just let my uh, contract with the Army play out. Um. I uh, initially worked a few months for Triple Canopy and then waiting for my clearance to go through with uh, the agency in GRS. And um, so I did a few trips up there, met some cool people. What were you doing um, for Triple Canopy? Was it State uh, Department? State Department stuff. Of course, they lost that contract. 
Um, they were holding on to two parts of it, I think. They'd already lost most of it to Blackwater. Um, and they were still holding on to two parts. And because I was a Mosul guy already, I'd already worked in northern Iraq, uh, wound up there on that team, met some really cool dudes, actually became one of the shift leaders. Um, and then they lost that contract too. And it was like, okay, but luckily myself and three guys from that team had already put in for GRS. And um, so went over there. That was with MBM at the time. I think what was it Blackwater and MBM. Both what what uh, time period is this? Oh, five. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. So you started contracting early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did a few trips with GRS. Uh, Sock USA took over from MVM. MVM had a good way of running it. Like, as we would go in to get gear or whatever, like, there was no operator type dudes in the office. It was like the admin girls. And you would go in, and whoever walked in, and like, look through the resumes. You go through them, and if you, oh, definitely. No fucking way. Trash can. Shredder. You know? And that's how JRS was stood up, you know, at least with the MVM side, you know, it was it was self-correcting. You know, it was like, oh, all it took was one dude to say this dude was a POS and he ain't getting hired. You know? Nice. So JRS in the beginning was hitters, you know, like I was surrounded by studs, you know, Delta guys, freaking dev group dudes. I was like, whoa, I am, you know, low on this totem pole. And then it didn't take long before a lot of those dudes were rotating out to cooler, better stuff, GB, SAD. And, and then, um, heck, there were some cool high-paying jobs, like, was it SAIC or US? Uh, they, they were guys who took the, um, like, the national police and all that. Um, you know, there were some good, those jobs were paying good, and they were out not just doing protection work. They were out, you know, advising yeah. So a lot of those, you know, initial super studs went to those projects. And um, so then that, that SOC took over or won the contract out from underneath MVM. We were in country when it happened. So it was like the MVM people showed up, took our gear one day. And we're like, we don't, we're, we kind of need body armor. We're in Iraq. Uh, we need your guns too. And we're like, wait a second. Next day. Sock rolls up with all new body armor and guns and stuff. It was like, what is going on? You know, this is yeah. so weird. But it was the way it handled, and it, it went pretty flawless. Um, but Sock, the people Sock put in charge, like MBM had had these these administrative females. They knew they didn't know a damn thing about what we were doing, and they were cool with it. So they would take our advice. Sot put in these freaking dudes who were not qualified. Who were not qualified to manage soft dudes. Or, or a project that soft dudes were running. And some of those dudes are still running that program, from what I understand, are still involved in that program. Um, I was outspoken, you know, kind of a, I don't know, borderline arrogant, <laughs> you know. But at this point, man, you know, you're talking like 07, 08 now. Um, I got lots of trips, quite a few fights. Um, my attitude was, I'm not getting killed because y'all are stupid. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And so I had no problem voicing my opinions. And I was a quote unquote senior guy at this point, right? I've been a contract TL for a long time or a few years at least in Mosul most of the time. So we weren't running green zone. You know, yeah. we were getting we were getting chewed up here and there. Um anyway, I bumped. Can you heads. go through some of that? Oh yeah, man. One of the coolest ones. Cause you always, you know, I, I like telling people the dumb, funny shit yeah. that happened to me. All right. Like one time I was running to a target fast as I could. I want to be number one man. Trip fell and breached the door with my face. <laughs> and my nuts. <laughs> right? Just, you know, fast as I could go. I'm a young stud. Trip fell. Wound up in the foyer of this building with my nods sideways, my helmet all choking me out. And my buds run by and they're like, get up, dude. You know, all right, I'll get up now. Reach her up. Um, but yeah, we, I was sitting in traffic one morning, uh, getting ready to cross over Bridge One, the northernmost bridge, high rise bridge uh, in Mosul. Traffic's thick, we can't get anywhere. And I'm like, you know, talking to the helicopters. We've got the, uh, the old Kiowas supporting us on our way out. We're headed, I think we were going to Dehook, maybe or Bill. Dehook, because we were going up that bridge. And, um, there's like one exit that goes down into downtown before the river. And I'm just, we're just sitting there, sitting in traffic. And it, sometimes when you tell Americans like, yeah, we used to ride around by ourselves. And we were in low profile cars and civilian attire and just chilling, sitting in traffic. They're like, what? And typically speaking, that low profile is what kept us alive. But that morning we got made. And uh, so it was like a late 97 series, the boxing one, not the space shuttle looking one, you know? And... Luckily, it was 11, level seven. And I'm talking to the helicopter, checking text messages, you know, doing comms, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, my bro goes and jumps. And I look at him, and his eyes are this big. And I'm like, this? And right next to my window is an AK muzzle. Dudes had pulled up in a red Opal. What other kind of car is there, right? Freaking pulls up next to us, and the dude in the back seat is leaning out of the window, and he's pretty much he could have tapped my window with his AK, and he went full auto. And I would love, I would love to be able to tell people that my reaction was cool, tough, badass. I, this is, man, I, I've been shot up before. You'd think I'd have been cooler. Nope, I went. <laughs> and threw my hands up like I'm going to stop those bullets yeah. and he chewed about half that glass out and um, his driver floorboards it so like about half his mag went it right here it would, he'd have killed us both you know, for, for armor and his driver punches it so some of the rounds kind of hit the windshield and went down the hood of the car and you know unless you're a suicide bomber you need an exit plan they didn't have a good one because the exit was completely stopped up with traffic. They went about 30 meters, bro, and were stopped. They had one AK and one magazine. Nice. And they had just emptied it. I got out of the car, calmly, coolly, basically walked up to them. And, um, well, anyway, freaking, they didn't shoot any more Americans. But that's the kind of goofy stuff, man, that uh, that happens that I don't think a lot of us want to talk about. You know, like, and I don't care. I'm like, look, man, for the 20 funny stories I have, I have 
200 missions that went awesome or, you know, that, that would probably be a cooler war story to share. I don't know, man. I mean, I mean, yeah, so I went in and we breached this door and went into this room, shot a dude. That happened all the time. You know, that's, that's just what we were doing. But it's the funny stuff. Like, Yeah. I've been I mean, in that like, situation. Trying to put my head <laughs> in, in my bro's shoulder, you know, and was going to stop bullets with my hands, you know. But it just shows us that, you know, like, you're still going to react, you know. We can't help it. Um, stupid stuff like that, man. Goofy stuff. I mean, you know, I I enjoyed Iraq because, you know, working with my Kurds and stuff uh, after I— left GRS, um, got to do a lot of amazing missions and dudes became my brothers. Um, you know, they, they were awesome. A little Peshmerga special forces. It was a platoon, a SEAL platoon's worth of uh, Kurds and uh, stood up by Dev, CIA sanctioned thing. Dev group guys stood it up and then handed it to the, you know, to us as contractors. And it was cool because it was trained by advise and assist, you know. Um, Where did you move to? Uh up in uh, the palace, uh, Barzani's compound. I mean, from GRS to... Oh, oh, so over to SAD, um, which I guess now they're calling themselves the directorate, ground directorate, ground branch. Um, so I went over there and... SAD stands for Special, Special Activities, Activities Division, Division right? Which is the umbrella for the directorates. Um, and like I said, last I heard, GRS was still underneath SAD. Not sure. Um but yeah, man, I mean, you know, one time we had a dude run out in front of us. And my bud just floorboards it, you know, drive, drive, drive. And this dude had that trigger pin on that AKA, even when he was underneath our car. <laughs> we had a Suburban. And uh, his, uh, one of his rounds hit the brake reservoir and the computer shut the vehicle down. So follow vehicle comes up pushes us and we had suburbans all taxi out you know you know hajied out or whatever and for folks listening basically we would just take armored vehicles and then make them look like you would and, and there are people don't know this there are american cars <laughs> in iraq and uh, so like the suburbans you know you know, put little tassels and you'd haji it out put chrome on it uh you really want to get haji you got to put chrome and gold you know shiny things all over your suburbans um and yeah, uh, dude, man, God bless his heart. He was committed because underneath our truck, he was still pinning that trigger. And um, the guys that were pushing us were like, dude, you guys drug that guy for you know 500 meters before he popped under our vehicle. And I think we drug him for another freaking 500 meters, you know, just creating a slick down the pavement with mm -hmm. this poor guy. You know, I, I had... Um, I had a fight in Iraq where I wound up by myself because one of the, one of my guys uh, got killed, and it was just the two of us doing um, surveillance stuff. And how did he get killed? Round. Kind of sucked, man. We were we got made. Um, we were pretty low profile. Thought we were pretty good, but um, as we were leaving this neighborhood, one of the lookout type bad guys or whatever. Definitely made us, man. He did the double take, and it was like we got we got slowed down as we passed him, and it was like, oh shit, <laughs> like we're made, and um, made the call. Hey guys, hey, just FYI, guys, you know we're compromised. Freaking, we're RTBing, returning to base. 
uh, you know, all's cool. We pull out, went up, made a U-turn, and this dude comes running out with an RPG. And I'm already on the gas. I was driving. And um, probably 55, 65 mile an hour. And uh, poof, RPG. And I swerved right into it. <laughs> you know, took it in the hood, took it in the grill. Um, that made the steering not work. And we went into one of those big metal light posts, you know? Yeah. And the median, the median was like this tall up in that wham. And, um, you know, of course, on all those vehicles, we had the airbags disabled and all that kind of stuff. And I ate the steering wheel pretty good and was dazed and confused. And my guy's like, wake up, man, wake up. And I'm gonna get together and he's like, we gotta go that way. Roger, yep, hard pointing over there, got it. And uh, I was like, ready, ready, let's go. Pop the doors. And, you know, I, I moved around to the hood and started giving the guys a, and they were pot shotting us at this point, you know, they weren't 100% sure what they were dealing with. And so the bad guys, you know, it's three lanes and then, uh, so full six lanes there of road and then the uh, sidewalk and then kind of an alleyway that they were kind of, you know, shooting at us from. And it, and it didn't take much to back them up. They were just real uncertain with what they were dealing with. You know what I mean? They're like, what are these guys? You know what I mean? They knew that big bearded dudes in Humvees and MRAPs were not to be messed with. Those are scary guys. But they didn't know what we were in the sedan. Like, what the? So anyway, it didn't take me but a few rounds into that fight to realize he had not come around the other side of the vehicle. Fuck. Yeah. And I'm like, I just kind of looked and I could see his legs still in the car. His door was open. So I ran around there and um, yeah, he was he was done. The round that went through him hit me in the back. And the only reason I know it was that round is because I had blood on my back. And I had no other time in this fight that I could have gotten blood on my back. Um, yeah, the round went through him and hit me right in the back plate. Freaking, so I ran around and grabbed him and he had a Mark 46 and I'm dragging him and as I round the car, his foot catches the muffler because I rounded the corner a little too short. And so I slipped and fell. So he's basically, he's in my lap and I'm looking and here comes these dudes. They're like, oh, opportunity. So I'm just like, yeah, trying to give him a little love, push him back a little bit. I get back up, turn around. And you know, with his grabbing his armor and ran. Had to drag him over that median, which he was all hung up on. Across the lanes. There's traffic, man. There's people. And bullets are flying and like people. You know how like yeah. they're just <laughs> sometimes people would scatter in fights in Iraq, and sometimes they would just go on about their business. Yeah. <laughs> like gunfight, people, leave. Yeah. And uh so I'm trying to drag through traffic and stuff, and, and you know, not a lot of traffic, just a couple cars in my way trying to get to this one little, you know, storefront. And uh, as I'm pulling him up on the daggone sidewalk, on the other side of the road, I slipped and fell again. And at this point, I pulled up his saw and went on like, like a 200-round burst. <laughs> I shouted almost an entire drum with like three bursts, just figure-eighting. Um, and that was very helpful because now all of a sudden these dudes, and, and like, you know, they, they've got a couple of their buddies that ain't, ain't fighting anymore, so I was doing okay. And, uh, and I'm for, at this point, like I'm like, okay, I'm still okay. My buds are on the way, right? My buds have got to be on the way by now, right? 
I've been asking for help. Contact, contact, contact. Asking for help. They know. It wasn't until three or four buildings later that I realized I had also been shot in my fucking embitter. Oh, fuck. I'm talking on a radio that doesn't work. And I left my cell phone on a Velcro patch on the dash of the car. Shit. So now I got no comms. And like I said, I'm still talking on the radio, asking for help, and, you know, freaking, you know, trying to give updates on my movements and stuff. And um, I get him in, and the, the store owner basically, in, in English, asked me, you know, can I help you? And I'm like, please just leave. Just get out of here, bro. You know? And he, so he took off. And um, I rolled up this dude in a carpet and stuck him underneath the stairwell. And uh, I tossed a PDM in the doorway. Uh, for folks that don't know, a PDM is a pursuit deterrent munition. It's a little, little mine, if you will, that you pull a little string, or pull a pin on it, and um, I can't remember, six or eight wires pop out of it, little trip wires. And uh, so when someone comes after you, they trip it, it goes off, and, then I, and I, ideally, uh, deters them from pursuing you, pursuit deterrent munition. And um, threw one in the doorway, took a couple more shots, took off, and started bounding back, right? Um, I took everything I could off of him, uh, his pistol mags. He didn't have any AR mags. And um, he had like a 100-round nut sack. Uh, it's a smaller sack for the saw. I took a saw, saw land for my. At this point, I'm like, okay, right? I'm going to get up on the roof, make a call. Helicopters will be here in a minute. And so I went up on the roof, and it was a flat roof with no knee walls. Had my VS-17 panel out, and that is when I discovered my radio was making a lot of, it, it had some rattly pieces. And what it, what it was, you know, like there's um, those radio holders that you fold down, yeah, you know, like hinged. I was like, man, I must be on the wrong net. Something's wrong. So I'm like, I'm going to a different net. And I opened that up, and I was like. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, shit. Screen was blank. Funny thing was, that AK round is still in that embitter. I have it at home. I still have the radio. And that AK round is in the embitter. It did not go through and hit my plate. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Our radios are ballistic, or at least in this case, mine was. Um, <sighs> stupid stuff, right? I left my VS-17 panel on the roof because I started taking fire. And uh, I was like, ooh. I went, jumped off the roof. It was like, basically, the roof I was on, second story, first story roof that was like this, but wasn't here. When I got up there, I didn't make a mental note that this, that part of the roof didn't exist. So I went running and jumped off thinking I was going to land on this and missed. All the way to the dirt, dude. Two stories, you know. And I was just like, oh, my God, that hurt. Whew, you know, got myself together. And I remember as I stood up, dude came running around the corner. Like, I mean, maybe double the distance, me and you. And I'm just, on, I'm like, on my knees, I'm starting to get up. And I look, and he runs, and he looks, and he looks right, right through me. He's mid-20s. Looks, looks. It takes off. And I'm like, his buddy runs up behind him, keeps keeps going past the little alleyway, and I hear him hitting the brakes. 
he saw me out of peripheral vision and he came back and put his head around the corner. So I dumped him. His buddy sees it happening. I start to move to the corner and we almost run into each other. He comes hauling ass around the corner freaking. And I'm like, it was kind of weird because it was like, pow. And he hits my muzzle and like kind of, you know, kind of like pushed him out of the way with it. Yeah. It's the weirdest shit. Um, back, back up, went into buildings. So I was like, I need to stay off the streets. And it was getting to the point now, right, where like, I'm okay, you need to manage your ammo. Uh, and I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, no one knows where you're at. No one knows this is happening. Crap, right? Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to the river. Haji can't swim. If I can get to the river, I'll swim down south, freaking get out of the river and walk to the freaking airbase. I'll be fine. That was my best plan I had come up with. And it was not a bad plan. It would have worked had I ever gotten to the river. And uh, so this goes on. This is June. It's hot, and I don't have any water. I got bad enough, probably probably about just over an hour into this, that I drank water out of a sink in Iraq. And I was like, well, hopefully I'll be home before this kicks in. <laughs> like I knew I was going to have, have the shits, right? I was like, well, but I was bad dehydrated. And um, lesson learned there, camelback on your body armor. I found like a one liter camelback, and I put it in my back plate in my body arm in the back as a reserve you know emergency you know i wouldn't drink off of it it was only there for an emergency it would been nice to have that day i never had to really use it since <laughs> you know that's probably what lessons learned they always apply to that that thing and then they know it like it never happens again shit but anyway so have that camel back still in my back plate um but uh, as i got less and less ammo when I went inside, I transitioned my pistol. All said and done, man. Um, well, I got to the marsh and a Kiowa screamed by me. And I was like, please don't shoot me. <laughs> and he looked. They were looking for me. No, sure. My, guys, my guys knew. Right? Did you I was supposed to be device? home. No, we didn't hit the tracker or nothing. We had the Blue Force trackers. We were getting shot up and I was dazed and confused. And then my partner gets shot, you know what I mean? Blues Force Tracker. Didn't think of hitting it. Yeah. I mean, I thought about it. I didn't know if it was on the whole time or, you know. Did the um, RPG So, so they found it, right? Because, you know, the Blue Force Trackers emit all the time, but I didn't hit the emergency. So they knew IBO, right? They knew the okay. vicinity of. And, um, but I mean, I'm at at least an hour and a half now. And they've... They had the guys had come. My guys were out looking, um, and they had gone and got uh, the ODA. Um, I think it was a seventh group ODA. Uh, so they, everybody was out looking for me. They just weren't sure where, and so they were getting little ticks as well. And they could hear the gunfire. They said here and there, but gunfire in Iraq, yeah, um, very common, right. I was managing my ammo, man. I was no shit using my pistol inside and switching the rifle outside. Um, I threw two PDMs. Both of them went off. I heard them both go off, and I just laughed. I was like, hell yeah. They're not very devastating. Like, the reality is if a PDM went off right here between us, it probably wouldn't kill either one of us. You know, they have less uh, explosive in them than a frag grenade. And um, 
but I remember hearing them both going off and I just laughed. I was like, yeah, motherfuckers, <laughs> you know, like, ha, um, like y'all are going to kill me today, but I ain't going alone, you know? Uh, and that's kind of where I was at. I was like, man, I just don't know if I'm gonna get out of this one. Um, and I, I never got riled up or any of that stuff. It was just like, I don't know, just keep, you know, as, to, as they show themselves, I'll shoot them. And, um, long story short, man, I, uh, I got to the marsh and that Kiowa screamed over and man, he hard banked it freaking up, settled back down, came right up on top of me and freaking waved. And I was like, I just kind of sat down in the marsh. It was, um, sitting on my butt. It was about head high, but I could see. And, um, he sat there for a minute and kind of pulled off just a little bit. And I, have you ever heard the, the 50 cows on the Kiowas? They're not like, boom, 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 boom. They're like, doo, 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 doo. they're turned up. Their cyclic rate of fire is totally different than the ones we put on the uh, Humvees. And I had never heard one before. And he's right there. And he's just like. Man, I have not heard that. Yeah, I never. I was like, what has he got? You know, it's a 50 cal, but they're just much higher, almost double the rate of fire. Those are the ones that we put okay. like, shooting on Humvees and stuff. And I was like, holy shit. Um, he had, I think, is it three? I think they only had three 2.75 rockets. And he shot two of those, if I remember correctly, maybe three, um, and peeled off. And um, it kept popping up, you know, if anything presented itself, take a shot at it. And maybe a couple minutes later, an Apache came out of the river. Like he was screaming up the river, popped up off the river, came right over, waved at me. I could see the rivets in the bottom of the helicopter. And I was kind of like, let me get a hold of one of them tires. Get me out of here, dude. And sure enough, around the corner rolls in a striker. It's the Rangers. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, the Rangers, they only do one thing. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. Um, I had nine, nine millimeter rounds and 14, five, five, six rounds left. Nine millimeter rounds and how many? Nine, five, five, six? Nine, nine millimeter and 14, five, five, six rounds left. Holy shit, man. I had I'm thrown my three frag grenades and his two frag grenades and two PDMs. One of the frag grenades I literally threw in the room I was in. How many combatants so did you face that day? They picked up 26 bodies. Jesus, man. It was nuts. Yeah. And it definitely, like it. remember I said I didn't realize I was immortal until Ben died? That day made me think I was immortal. You survive something like that, you know, it was like, and it's all wrong. I should have, but I was young and dumb, right? I mean, just young and cocky. And I mean, I just spent, you know, almost two hours fighting by myself and made it through it, you know, um, with no training. There was no training I had ever done in my life to set me up for that. There was no single person CQB classes, right? Yeah. How many people does it take to do CQP? Two, period. And that, we were still in that phase. Like, no one was doing singleton work. No one was doing single person CQB. What year Part did this happen? So, well, that was, that's 2011. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's about the time we started doing single man CQB. It wasn't my chance because there was other um, instances of other guys. Um, we all got together and started talking about it. 
We, um, what was the, the place over in Maryland that JRS used to use to train? Oh, I don't remember the name. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking His, about. The place over the hooded box drills and all that stuff they did. Yeah. So we went over there to use their their indoor range, their CQB house, and tested all kinds of crazy John Wick type shit. Um, like, hey, I'm breaking out of a room. I'm talking shooting in all kinds of weird angles behind you as you ran through a shoot house. We tried all kinds of stuff and just, you know, and, and opt it. You know, it, it had to test it on force on force. And then we just basically kind of came back to, okay, single-person CQB needs to be kind of just like point of domination, only you're by yourself, so you can go anywhere you want. And that's an oversimplification of single-person CQB, but that's the essence of single-person CQB. So you're the one that developed the program? Not by myself. No, it was like you're eight or nine of us up there when we were doing it. But I was, was it that? Was it that? That instance. that That's what part, part of it. it. Part oh, of it damn. fueled the development of it. Yeah, myself handful of other dudes, not to mention way more singleton operations going on out there. We had females running around um, and then needed to be a solution to this problem. Um, because like with GRS, you know, it was like, okay, the tough guys are going to sit outside the meeting while the, uh, you know, the case officers inside, if something happens, they'll go get him or her. Well, you know, in GB, you got PMOs and, and you know, so they don't, they're not rolling with GRS. They are by themselves. So, you know, tried all kinds of stuff and came down to the basics that, hey, man, it's not the tactics or the techniques that make CQB by yourself different. It's the speed. The situation is going to dictate the speed. Am I leaving? I mean, I had a meet and go bad one time where I literally just ran. I left a 760 <laughs> in a bad neighborhood. Uh, we had to go back and get it that night. Because um, apparently you can't just leave half million dollar cars laying around Iraq. And, uh, but I did. I mean, that, you know, that's why, that is why I've always maintained or tried to maintain a six minute mile. Um, as big as I got, or, you know, not that I was huge or anything, but as I got bigger and put on more weight from lifting, I still maintain my six minute mile. Um, because I ran 1.2 miles in the Mosul mile, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to get away from a bad situation. Didn't even pull my pistol. I mean, carbine was in the trunk, pistol, plain clothes, ran. So when people talk about like, oh, running breeze cowardice, well, but it also can save your life. <laughs> yeah. Or it can get you to the fight before everybody else. So yeah, man, um, that was some pivotal shit. But at the same time, like I said, it's still... It was just another day at work. It, it, did, it wasn't a profound thing um, in my career, uh, even though it was. Looking back at the time, it was just, hey, let's get back to work. You know, let's not make a big deal out of this. Let's get back to work. Because um, they wanted me to, hey, you need to go home and take a couple days off, man. I'm like, for what? I'm just doing my job, bro. You know? But I will tell you this. I there's been one other time in my life I was more dehydrated than that day. Them Ranger boys freaking rolled up, dropped that tailgate. They grabbed me, kind of you know, helped me, you know, because I, I had been sitting for a minute. My legs were getting tired. They were already pretty smoked. They drove me up in that thing, handed me a water bottle. I drank it. I remember it, my stomach hurt, you know. I was like, ooh, that hurt. I was like, I'm going to need an IV. And they're like, hey, man, we're going, we'll be back at base in five minutes. You're going straight to the hospital. I'm like, all right, cool. And, uh, you know, going home, they get out, and they're like, you were out here by yourself doing this shit? 
<laughs> like, not on purpose, fellas. You know, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be doing this. You know, it just happened. So that was kind of nuts. Um, you know, freaking it. it it changed my perspective about so many things. Um, you know, what guns we choose, what gear you have. I mean, it was a 416 with a EOTech on it. Yeah. Um, and a Glock 17. You know, nothing fancy. You know, uh, it got the work done. Um, so when guys are like, you know, latest, greatest guns and gear and stuff, that, things like that throughout my career of just using whatever was issued or whatever we could buy. That's why I don't care about gear. Yeah. It's, it's you know... I don't know if we can say this anymore, but it's the Indian, not the arrow. You know, that's a that is a very factual statement. A, a good somebody that's any good. And don't get me wrong, man. Like I sometimes joke that you know I'm only still here because Scott likes me. <laughs> There's really not much other explanation for it with all the close calls, you know, and the injuries and all that. It's like I must still have something to do here, right? Like why else would I still be here? Yeah, there's got to be something else, and one of these days I'll figure it out. It'll fall in my lap and be like, maybe, you know, maybe like, yeah, this is what God wanted me to do. <laughs> Have you been asking? Hmm? Have you been asking? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, we were talking about this earlier off camera. That, you know, I I'm a Christian. I was raised in the Methodist church. My mom wanted me to go to church, so my dad made me go to church. Uh, I've read the Bible twice. I need to read it again. I need to start reading it instead of like reading it cover to cover like I did, you know, when I was younger. I, I need to start reading more often. And we're going to. Melissa just bought us a Bible study for couples, uh, like a, a, a guide to, you know, have, help you go through the Bible where it's, you know, very um, specific to couples and relationships, you know. I'm looking forward to that. Um. But as far as asking, you know, specifically asking God, like, hey, what's the point? What you got me here for? No, I haven't. And I probably should. I really thought about it. It's weird I, that you said that. I don't know that I've ever asked God for much of anything. I mean, there's been times where like, and I'm probably sure that day I probably begged for help, <laughs> you know. But as far as like that type of conversation, I don't know that I really have it like that with God. I, I thank him for all the things and blessings that I have. Um, and I'm usually kind of more like, whatever you want from me, I'm here. You yeah. Know? Um, so yeah, to answer that question, I guess, no, I've never specifically asked, you know, what is your plan for me? I guess I just trust that I'm living it. Well, might be a good time. Yeah, I, I I just trust. You know, I, I've never questioned my faith. Um, you know, some people say when they lose their buddies, you know, like, why God? Or you lose your mom, why God? I've never done that. Not once. My faith has never been compromised. There's been times I wasn't very faithful. Very different, right? Misbehaving, sinning. Um, yeah, I had a lot of that. But never once have I questioned my my faith. I've always believed, um, and it's cool because like uh, we had some Jordanian SMU guys. They're they're I don't know I don't know if we should say Delta Force equivalent, but their Tier One unit uh, came and and helped us and worked with us with the Kurds, and you know their Sergeant Major stud. 
same as Ayesh. Man, dude's a stud. Dude's been in like more wars in places. I was like, you did what? You know, like, and of course, sometimes we use our allies to do things that we can't get away with. And that unit was, is definitely one of those units. Um, but it was an amazing conversation I would have with those guys. They're like, it's the same God, man. You know? And, and you know how Americans can be, right? Like Muslims, you know, as if Muslims are all bad. Clearly not the case. I have spent many a time on my hands and knees on a prayer rug. I still have it. It's on my front porch. Uh, that was gifted to me by those guys. And I would pray with them. Next on The Sean Ryan Show. We are in a sedan, and we were the lead vehicle. Um, one of, we were leading Ranger Regiment to a target. Target too big for us. So, you know, platoon plus worth of Rangers and Strikers not far behind us. They, we were supposed to pull up, and when we stop the gate prior to us and to the left, they need to just drive through that gate. That's the target house. Um, we didn't get there. We got stopped at a light in traffic, and we just happened to park next to an EFP that was meant for a striker. And then the video shows it never happened. Two very different stories. So we put it all together and launched it. Local media wouldn't touch it. Hello. I'm Tony Calvin, and I'm running for U.S. House of Representatives. I was fed up. I was fed up with the government not doing the right thing. They're just not doing the right thing. Today's show is sponsored by HelixSleep.com. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to HelixSleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it and was matched with the Midnight Lux. Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your front door, shipped for free. When you receive your Helix mattress, you'll be hooked. It's so easy to unbox and you won't believe how well you sleep. You'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed. Helix mattresses are fiberglass free and cradle your body for essential support in every sleeping position. They have a 10 year warranty and Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash SRS. That's helixsleep.com slash SRS. This is their best offer yet, and it's not going to last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.